Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number, let's see here, what is it, 267? Let's see, I got to get this right. 267, 267. Uh, Mysteries and Metaphysics 7.0 with our distinguished guest, Leah, Leah Prime from uh, Twitter, if you're on Twitter. We have Shane on as well, uh, playing on his phone. Um but you know Maurice isn't going to be on too much until we get the documentary done so I really wanted to continue the Mysteries in Metaphysics series and I thought Leah would be a good uh, good co-host Shane obviously is you know we've talked about this topic many times uh, so yeah and if you're interested we have done two recent psychedelic episodes uh, last night we did one with author Stephen Gray uh, he's also an advocate from the BC area it was a really good episode um, and we had Matthew Palomari on last week, who is a wealth of knowledge and, you know, anything South American ayahuasca retreat wise, he's very, very knowledgeable. He knows all the people as well as a lot of clandestine people from the, eighties uh, and nineties. So check out that episode, uh, if you have not already and, uh, yeah, we're going to hit, uh, so 7.0, the six is six. Point, I think O through 6.4 was all UFO, UAP stuff, um, and 7.0 will be psychedelics, and we're going to start off with the history of psychedelics, so anything from what we know of through, you know, prehistory and archaeological evidence all the way up to now, we'll try and condense it all pretty, and summarize it in a, in a easy way here, so, uh, but uh, yeah, welcome on the show, Leah, and welcome, Shane. Yeah, thanks, Thank you, Mike. Mike. As always, hey. honor and privilege hey, to be here with both of you, gentlemen. Hi, Shane. I'm glad you're here. And just to show you, you don't have to worry about the one messing up. I put the time in that video as seven when it should have been seven thirty. So, yeah, you're good. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, Shane did mess up the video earlier, and I yeah, I him. do. Uh, it's all good though. You cool. know what? We're always late with this thing. We do a live show. This is never on time. I don't care. All What's right. up, Nora? Um, yeah, shout out to Toby. He wants to know who is Leah Prime. Chase, Toby. Chase, uh, Toby. Spooky. Yeah. What's up? So, you know the the interesting thing about this topic to me um, is the evolution of ideas of metaphysics, like the background of ancient psychedelic use is interesting to me from the standpoint of um, 
understanding, you know, like consciously how we got here and, and, and what we're doing uh, currently. So that's that's where I'm at currently with it. Um, you know, many times we've done tons of episodes on this topic, um, from our own personal trip reports to having, you know, top guests on and things like that. Um, and I can say that in my, I, I got into it in, in my teens and I, I was just always interested in what else is there. I never felt connected to anything religious or spiritual, even though I was brought up, uh, Catholic and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until I found psilocybin and had some experiences in cannabis and things like that where um, I'm like, oh, okay, there's there's more than meets the eye. Um, so that kind of interested me. But then, you know, as many do, you get into your later teens and early 20s and you're maybe just doing it, not necessarily as just a party, um, you know, from a party standpoint. But yeah, I mean, I didn't really have the reverence for it. But now I have complete reverence. It's not something I haven't done it in a couple years I'm on a little bit of a hiatus, but, um, you know, when I come back to it, if I come back to it in the future, um, it'll be for a purpose. It's not going to be just to do it. So um, I'd like to hear how Leah and uh, Shane, you know, view it versus how they viewed it growing up. Yeah, so the long story short is that I had very much a nerdy, straight and narrow adolescence and young adulthood. I, I didn't begin any kind of meaningful experimentation until well into my 20s. Um, I was ROTC in college, was extremely focused on academics, did tons of sports, all that good stuff. Um, I became, I had always harbored a fascination with the mystical and the transcendent. You know, I loved the works of Terence McKenna, of Robert Anton Wilson, Philip K. Dick. Um, these were sort of the figures that raised me intellectually. Um, but it wasn't until my late 20s that I started to become personally involved in this scene. Um, and so it never had a recreational component for me at all. It always was this exploration or subject that was deeply rooted in ideas around healing and community, communal experience and community relationships. Um, and as I've progressed in my own healing journey, and have also honestly assisted people around me in their own healing journeys. Um, I've become much more personally invested in the accessibility and the destigmatization of psychedelics and exotic and expanded consciousness for people to explore themselves and to explore their place in the world. I like that answer. Um, you get an A. Let's move on to Shane. Shane. Thank you. I, I can't follow that, man. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about what, what First a First of all, I shouldn't have ate those gummies if I knew I was going to follow her. <laughs> Second of all, I couldn't follow her without the gummies. Um, but I will say, I will say, when I was younger, what I, psychedelics to me, I was just a kid. I was going to, you know, I had fun, several experiences and pretty intense. And I had one super bad trip on some gel tabs and I never touched them again, joined the military, went through all the shit, you know, that I did. And then, uh, after my experience, all I wanted to do is read. And one of the books I picked up was, mm -hmm. uh, psychedelics is medicine. And then I started reading some other books, McKenna, Stamet, all these other things. And then I microdosed and then I realized, Oh my Lord, the, the filter and the way it made me feel and centered me and, and then it was just a total difference, right? The use of it, right? Like then I, I, I did it for about six months. I haven't done it since. But then it was more about partying and stuff like that. And 
the doses I took probably weren't shouldn't be recommended. All I know is one time I ended up at a rave near Chicago there, Mike, and then my friends found me in a ditch, and I'd taken solo cups and cut them up and made them into a suit of armor and taken straws and made a sword, and I was fighting dragons. So I was pretty – I was, it was out in the middle of a 2,000 people rave, dude. I mean, 2,000 people. Dude, the, the audience that here is getting, like, a perfect spectrum of psychedelic people, right? Like, like this is, like, sort of like every single archetype. You get the fucking turbo nerd who's, like, blah, 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 healing, exploration, woo-woo. You get people who actually have social lives and grew up having fun. Like, and who have come back around to this as something meaningful. And like, I think that's, you know, like one of the things I, I, I want to say to curate, kind of curate the space, which is such a fucking awful phrase, um, such a business bro thing to say. Um, the first is that um, for me, a major turning point, I, I never conferred any kind of um, <clears throat> value judgment, I guess, uh, on psychedelic use or expanded consciousness. But once I started, um, you know, as I became much more intense and serious about my Buddhism and my meditation practice, um, it became very apparent to me that so much of daily life is psychoactive. Like your brain and body responds to everything you do, whether you're checking Twitter or reading a text message or eating something or having a cigarette. And that sort of de in my head sort of destigmatized the deliberate pursuit of like expanded states. Once I realized that that's just sort of this control mechanism that permeates every part of our lives. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say to sort of lay some substrate here to the conversation is that there's been substantial amounts of research done into how psychedelic experiences affect people's metaphysics and views. And it's pretty categorically proven that people who use psychedelics, like they experience substantial shifts in metaphysics, particularly um, when it comes to shifting away from like strict materialism or physicalism uh, when it comes to interpreting reality. So it makes sense uh, to me that like, this research, I mean, it's not just a, an artifact of the 21st century, like this is stuff that's existed since time immemorial, that humans have used expanded states and exogenous psychedelics and things like breath work or trance dancing um, deliberately and in turn have subsequently fundamentally shaped the metaphysics that have shot through pretty much all of human recorded history. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to kind of, I'm going to try and keep it somewhat chronological um, from what we know. Oh, yeah. We might go back and forth a little bit, but um, but yeah, you're right. And, hey, um, real quick, Mike, I have dude. ADHD, so a little yeah, bit you of do. going back and forth is probably going to be a lot. Okay. Well, thank you for cutting me off. Um, no, we're going we're gonna to have fun tonight, but we're also going to learn, and that's what we're all about here, having fun and learning. Um, and, you know, well... I guess let's start with the stoned ape hypothesis, if you will. Uh, but before we do that, I do, we didn't really plug anything in the beginning. Please follow Leah on Twitter at Leah Prime. Please follow Shane on Twitter, Old Vet Symposium. Follow me uh, at Mike Escape. Um, and if you want to support the show, there's a link tree link down below. There's plenty of ways to do it on the link tree. Um, and we appreciate everybody's love and support. And always have. So. Um, I am going to play our documentary trailer with both, both Leah and Shane are in it, um, and we will 
play that at the end. I'll start. I'll just play it like every episode going forward until it premieres. So, um, but yeah. So let's get started and let's start with the stoned ape hypothesis. Um, so the basic idea of the um, stoned ape hypothesis to anybody who doesn't know, which is part of Terence McKenna's uh, ideas, it comes from the book Food of the Gods, uh, which is a great. It's an excellent book, whether you believe it or you know think there's validity to it or not i think it's an excellent read and i think it's worth reading as even just a thought experiment so um but the idea is that when early hominids transitioned from the you know being living up in trees and things like that and going down into the savannas they would then flip cow patties um to you know forage for psilocybin mushrooms uh, which would have been plentiful um and in doing so, they increase their edge detection, visual acuity, um, and things like that, and just overall mental capacity and, you know, things that we know of that, you know, funnel towards what we have today via our senses and sight and everything like that. So um, do you have anything, before we keep going, do you have anything to add, Leah or Shane, on this topic? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that, I love about McKenna's theory here is he kind of like accounts for basically like the effects that different dosing regimens would have on people, right? Like he talks about how at the low doses, you're talking about better visual acuity, improved hunting, things like that. But he even gets into in Food of the Gods and also actually in some of his trialogues with um, Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake, like he talks about how ingesting large quantities of this would do things like lead to orgies, which he attributed as helping to create like a more diverse genetic population and making like a more robust like human lineage um and i my understanding too is he had some ideas basically about how these experiences would effectively like stimulate creativity and impart like some i think at the time he was theorizing effectively about neuroplasticity but we've now know from research that psychedelics do confer neuroplasticity. They do help brains sort of rewire and restructure. Um, so even if like, like my general view on this theory is that even if it's like unprovable or unfalsifiable, like the aesthetics of it are so compelling and so interesting given what we now understand scientifically about psychedelics. Yeah. I mean, Paul Stamets, Mr. Mushroom is pretty certain to, uh, that there's a lot to it. So um, you know, if, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Paul Stamets, but if you haven't, go check out his stuff. Mm -hmm. He's been on Rogan a few times. He does a ton of interviews. Fantastic fun guy. He's all over the place. So actually, you, you mentioned um, Rupert Sheldrick. His son, Merlin Sheldrick, is a mycologist and like super, super That's right. intelligent dude. And uh, he did an episode of whatever um, uh, Neil uh, deGrasse's podcast is and he schooled neil degrasse it was actually kind of you know because neil degrasse can get kind of it's pompous incredible. um and merlin kind of like you know throwing it all out there so nerding out but um yeah so to your point though leah i mean you're right he hit on a lot of points that we know to be true um did he know that that was going to be the case i don't know i mean he's not around to i mean we could i guess we could ask you know dennis uh, i'm sure he would have some idea from the millions of conversations you know that they've had but um yeah i think that there's something to it because i think that when you look at morals and ethics and the way you feel on the come down um where did those ideas come from did they just pop in oh i should just be a good person or 
um, was there something compelling that person to enact that way and, and um, you know, interact with other people in that manner? Um, I, I, w- I would like to think so. I mean, some of my most profound experiences on the come down, you want to get your entire life together and figure things out and be the best mm-hmm. version of yourself. So imagine that in some ancient hominid or something that, you know, is kind of on their way to being us. I could see that help shaping that person and then, you know, even if it was just, let's say it was, let's say we don't go back to early hominids and we could just go back to early civilization or let's say 12,000 years ago, end of the last ice age, right? You know, after the younger dries, mm-hmm. even that, I mean, that would, you could make the argument that maybe something like that could lead to the idea of civilization, um, in, in different ways. So, and there is yeah, for sure. some I mean, evidence. Yeah, and I mean, you know, like one of the things, it's very like college freshman first mushroom experience thing to say, but like these experiences, particularly psilocybin, um, present a very strong sense of interrelationship and interdependence that in many respects is kind of categorically oppositional to the the kind of economic and political and social environment that we live in. And um I mean, there's plenty to say basically about this idea that the reason these substances have been stigmatized and made illegal is because people who use them and experience them tend to, um, like I said, change their metaphysics, but also um, have a more holistic and like non-hierarchical view of the world. It's harder to compel them to do things like care about money or debt or work. Um, which is contrary to kind of like wealth generation and capital in in modern society. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I do think that there is this really compelling idea at the heart of Terence's um, theories. And I think that, um, like I said, like these are themes and behaviors that we see repeated across different civilizations uh, including antediluvian civilizations in ways that do curate and cultivate very strong community ties, community identities, um, and creative processes. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the other thing I think they point to is the doubling and tripling of the brain size at some point. They don't really understand what caused that. In the past, they pointed to things like new hunting techniques using like atlatls and uh, different spears and, you know, uh, whatever tools they've come up with to hunt. Um, and then, you know, another one was cooked meat. Now, the cooked meat hypothesis was recently dis- discredited somewhat. I don't know if it's fully off the table or what, but that was one of the main ones. And there was a paper that came out, I think, last year. I'd have to look for it. But um, it did kind of point to that not being the case now. So right now, I think the only thing on the table that I know of is for that whole process of the doubling and the tripling of brain size is the hunting technique. So um, obviously this could be a viable option um, because we're talking about neuroplasticity. Could that create growth? I think there is a, a psilocybin studies that or psilocybin study that shows dendritic growth, which are the, you know, the mm-hmm. little things in your brain that look like little, I don't even know how you d- describe it, but Tendrils How would you describe or, a dendrite, Mike? Yeah, yeah like little tendrils, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's pretty much where we're going with that. I mean, I don't really have too much to add on that. I, if you're interested, I really recommend reading Food of the Gods because it is, a good, like I said, it's a great book, whether you want to believe that that's the case or not. Um, yeah, 
I don't know. Do you guys have anything to add before we move on to the next aspect? No, I think this is a great foundation to build upon. Okay. I do want to show one image. Um, this is this is a recreation. Um, here, let me pull it up here. This is from... Um, here, let me get those names off there. So wow, look at all those mushrooms. Yeah, look at the mushroom hands. Um, so this is from an image that Terrence had in Food of the Gods. It's a recreation of that image. The original image is a lot clearer. Um, I don't know, you know, I, for copyright reasons, I didn't want to just throw anything up. So um, this is a free image. This is like a recreation of it, but you can see how the hands um, have the mushrooms and everything on there. So this is from one of the oldest um, evidence of psilocybin depiction, and this is from uh, Tassili and Ajir, which is a region of the Sahara Desert in Algeria. Um, and this mural, uh, there's like tons of murals too. It's not just this sh mushroom shaman. There's um, hunting, you know, murals and depictions. There's animals. There's all sorts of, you know, different symbols and different things. Um, and this is the murals they say are, they date to roughly between 7,000 and 9,000 years ago. Um, the type of psilocybe depicted, um, psilocybe, um, mire, I believe, M-A-I-R-E-I. -E um, I've never heard of that strain, but, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the earliest depiction and that's what he uses as proof, you know, going through the book and the progression of, um, evolution through there. So, all right. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, the actual image the the guy's got a kind of, the shaman's got a kind of interesting face. It almost looks like a, a bug face or a bee face or something. It's hard to explain. But... A, a mantid perhaps. Yeah. We might be going, getting UFO territory with that. Um, no, but, uh, interdimensional beings, you know, who knows? Um, who knows? Because we don't really know what's going on in these things. Hence, you know, all the controversy over what are psychedelic entities, you know. Or Leah's got a, if you're interested, Leah's doing a uh, reading group on Twitter uh, for Alien Information Theory, which is Dr. Andrew Gallimore's book. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the kind of unusual stuff, you know, entities and entanglement and all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested, check that out. Um, the next one I want to get to is the second oldest cave depiction, uh, which is a mural from Spain, uh, Selva Pascuala, which is, um, here, I'll pull it up right now. This is about 6,000 years old. And That's as you can familiar. As you, you have the bowl up in the corner, and then down below you see those little Psilocybe Hispanicas. Um and this has been verified. This isn't like, oh, pareidolia or anything. This has been verified by archaeologists and anthropologists and stuff like that. Same thing with the, the last image. So, yeah, this isn't really like woo or taking a shot in the dark. This is actual, you know, fact. So um, Yeah, well-accepted right. history. And, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. You have a depiction of a bull, um, you know, what comes out of the bull's tiny you know and then we're getting mushrooms so uh, hey i'm curious if uh yeah that contributed to well I, well i know there's a book by sebastian younger called tribes and it talks about uh warriors from ancient tribes used to not they'd battle when they came mm -hmm. home they didn't suffer from this kind of stuff right and part of it was 
because they stayed connected. And I wonder if that, that played a bit a part of it, like ancient medicines such as psychedelics, things like that. That's you know taboo nowadays. You know, Shane, that's such a such an astute question or comment too because like you do hear about how like the viking berserkers would use like amanita and mushrooms as well uh during battle and after um and i wonder too you know like because even if they were just used ritualistically like there is that sense of healing and wholeness um, yeah supposedly the berserkers use muscaria and panthera both both of them um i'm that's we'll get to that one fly garrick or um yeah, we'll further, it's a, that's further it's down. not really it's it's a hypnotic but we'll get to that yeah, it's, um, it's it's a, a delirium i think yeah but yeah we'll, we'll get to that later well <laughs> tis the season here comes christmas yeah um of course we gotta add a little mythology in the mix um so yeah so i just wanted to show the earliest two depictions that we know of now there are people that say like oh you know certain things other megalithic structures i think something might look like a mushroom i've heard lots of people try and make that connection at like gobekli tepe i don't see it those t pillars don't really represent a mushroom to me um i mean i don't know you know, like i said there's a there's a lot of woo out there too around these topics but um i'm open to new evidence if somebody has a paper or a compelling you know comparison or something i'm always willing to look at it you know it's not like i'm closed-minded to anything i'm just going by you know, using my last five years of doing this kind of stuff and just compiling and in in using a filter of what I think is reliable information versus what I think is BS. So, um, all right, let's keep moving on here. All right. So, you know, then the next thing we can get into, um, and again, the Algerian caves, those are from... Um, 7,000 to 9,000 years ago, uh, Slosabi, um, Hispanicas at Salva Pascuala, I believe are six, is it 6,000 BC or 6,000 years ago? I don't know. I forget. I had to look that up, but, um, you know, there's tons of traditions around the world. Um, and you know, I'm going to bring up a couple things here. So you have the sand people, um, which, you know, an African tribe dating roughly to 26,000 BC to present, um, you know, they've, I, I don't want to say they do use Iboga, but you know, there's some inkling that they may have used it or a lot of the African tribes and, you know, there's the Western African tribes primarily use it. Um, there's actually, um, a pretty good Hamilton's pharmacopoeia on that if you haven't seen that already. Um, so that's kind of speculation, uh, a speculation about the uh, aboriginals is that they used to use a stuff called Pituri. Um, which, you know, um, I forget what it is. It creates some sort of like a sleep-like state or something like that or um, uh, helps them like fast or something along those lines. Um, and then we get to what we know as civilization. Um, so that would be, you know, the Mesopotamian uh, region. You have Sumerians, Babylonians, Akkadians, um, and there's evidence of cannabis and opium. Uh, so I think 2018 or something, German, German archaeologist, um, found both cannabis and opium use. Um, they analyzed residue from these jugs or these pot, this pottery, um, and they were able to determine that that's what was in there. 
Um, I guess the Sumerians called opium the joy plant, um, and they started growing it and mm-hmm. cultivating it roughly around 3400 BC. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, I just I I just want to jump in here too and say that as I was doing some background research for this episode. I, I think I was unprepared for how commonly opium comes up in all of these different practices. Um, I mean, I knew, like, obviously people are using opium and I sort of knew that, but I didn't realize just how common it was and like all these different mystery schools and these like um, ritual practices. It makes total sense, but I just, I was surprised by that. It was really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Opium is probably one of the most prevalent ones on all the lists. Um, cannabis as well. Um, cannabis is mm-hmm. um, found, you know, in a lot of ancient texts and depictions, and we'll get to more well, cannabis in a little I, bit. Shane, can, do you have something to add? Yeah, I was going to say that opium still used, like in Pakistan and places like that. What we consider mm-hmm. like a tobacco dip, they grind opium up in theirs and put it in their gums, and they've been doing that for since you know ancient times. You know, it's just I didn't realize how popular it was in those you know different cultures and worlds. So yeah, it's something that's just there. Yeah, that's interesting. That part of the world, you know, they do different things like they'll roll hash, you know, with tobacco and things like that. Or you like you said, smoke opium and opium and tobacco, things of that nature. Um, But uh, yeah, I think that when you look at the history, you know, as you mentioned, there's opium, you know, cannabis is huge. Um, The thing about cannabis, too, is there's a lot of argument still um, in some regards of what it was called in some places and i think we'll talk about soma in a little bit but i think there's a compelling case to be made that mm-hmm. soma was cannabis or at least the original soma um but uh all right let's keep moving here um one of my favorite civilizations the ancient egyptians um so we go right from mesopotamia um you know and you, you get were the- like right on cue I literally yeah. have Egyptians next on my list. So, so you have, you know, the Mesopotamians and they, you know, they created a lot of things. Um, they were, you know, great engineers and innovators. There's actually a really good documentary um, before we get to the Egyptians. There's a really good documentary about the hanging gardens of Babylon. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, they're not actually um, found in Babylon. This woman archaeologist, I forget. There's a, there's a, there's a, something, a documentary I've watched, I don't know if it's BBC or Nova or one of those, uh, where this lady's like one of the top, um, you know, she can read, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, I'm, I'm having a brain Cuneiform? Fire. Yeah, cuneiform. She's one of the top people that can read cuneiform in the world. And she found uh, Sennacherib, this king Sennacherib, I believe that's how you pronounce it, um, had a lot of similarities. It's okay. None of us will know if you're saying it wrong, so... <laughs> Uh, Sennacherib, um, you know, and he supposedly created like aqueducts and all this crazy stuff. And so she found this place where she believes the real hanging uh, gardens uh, were were basically existed. And this lady is like a top archaeologist, so she's not really half-assing it either. I'll try and find that and add the link down below. But yeah, the, the, you know, there's a lot of innovation there too, which uh, the reason why I bring that up is... You look at the innovators of today, people working on technology and people that have inspiration from different places. And a lot of people that have had crazy breakthroughs in science and technology and, you know, all the things we like to um, think progress humanity along have all had psycho. You know, a lot of them have had these psychedelic experiences that have contributed to it. So, 
Um, let's see here. Yeah, so ancient Egypt. So uh, do you want to take this one, Leah, a little bit, and then I'll add in whatever. Yeah, so I was digging a little bit into the Osirian mysteries, right? These sort of ritual cults and mystery practices that were kind of co-evolving at the same time as the Dionysian mysteries um, or the Dionysian practices in Greece. Um, so um, it, Osiris is um, one of the Egyptian gods. Uh, I can't, of course, offhand remember exactly what he is the god of, um, but uh, these practices super similar to the Dionysian rites where you have people using different substances in a community or communal setting, basically trying to um, attain ecstatic or altered states in an attempt to commune with the gods. Um, and we have like different records of this. Uh, this is recorded like in the hieroglyphics and art of the time. We also have a number of references like in Egyptian, um, like art and hieroglyphics, particularly things that were found in the tombs around uh, blue lily, which is actually still a supplement that people use in, in modern herbology, which is used like for tinctures and it, it imbues like a sense of like calm or relaxation in the person who's, who's ingesting it. Um, but yeah, we, we do see this... Um, these like highly ritualized communal practices starting to emerge in ancient Egypt um, around this time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have the water lilies or um, blue lotus, as you mentioned, uh, 6,000 BC, ancient Egypt. There's archaeological mm -hmm. evidence for that. Um, King Tut was found with two um, jugs near him that had contained this as well. And actually, it's still used um, because it's a serotonin agonist. Or not a ser I'm sorry, a... Mm -hmm. um, a, is it serotonin? No, no it's it's, it's a, like a reuptake inhibitor. It's it's basically like a, a mild anxiolytic. I want to find what I had down there. It's a. Um, oh, that's gonna bug me now. Oh, and I'll also jump in and say that um, Osiris, as the Egyptian god, was the god of fertility, agriculture, the afterlife, the dead, resurrection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it would make sense that we have these rituals and these communal practices oriented around this particular god in the Egyptian pantheon, because these are this is the god who, in many respects, was deemed to be responsible for like the machinations of daily life, like whether or not people survived, whether or not they had children, whether or not their crops were successful. Um, so it makes sense that you would in turn have these community uh, ritual experiences meant um, as tribute to this particular figure in their religion. Yeah, great points. Um, you know, and if anybody's interested, um, Aaron Voot, who we've had on the show a while back, writes books on this, and he's really um, connecting a lot of stuff like cosmology and um, the myth of Osiris with psychedelic use and things like that. Um, and I actually, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, you, you know, actually probably the last like three or four years I've been discussing it, but the myth of Osiris is a very archetypal shamanic experience, being taken into the underworld, being disassembled, and then being put back together and, you know, um, ascending is something bigger, better, whatever. Um, you know, that's kind of, you look at all cultures and they have different versions of that. So it's a very archetypal experience. You know, what, what did it mean? You know, was it symbolism for something I, I, you know, or was it an actual story of a person like a myth that was just passed on and 
replicated and translated. I don't know. But um, yeah, so back to the Blue Lily. What I was going to mention, though, is um, the um, the aporphine, which is the active compound in Blue uh, Lily, um, is actually helps, I think, with a, with, um, uh, what's it called? Male um, ED, actually. And I think they use part of that compound in medicine for it to this day. I'm trying to find. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's probably yeah, some right, kind of Shane. You're the one that told me about <laughs> uh, Shane takes it every day. Um, let's see here. Shane, nah, you got a trip report you could share with the class? <laughs> Actually, it just hit me right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyways, we'll keep this moving. But, yeah, so they still use some of the active compounds um, from this Blue Lotus. Um, any, I, you know, I don't know if anybody's done it in here. I've never tried it. I've talked to people that have done it. Um, they said it's, like, mild, I but you – I've had oh, Blue Lotus. Okay. And what, what yeah. was the experience? Yeah, yeah, like? that's what I was saying. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like super interested in like uh, herbology or whatever you would want to call it. Um, I've had it as a tea. So the thing to know about Blue Lotus, there's two things. One, it's legal. You can buy it. It's totally fine to have and possess. Two, it's really difficult to find legitimate Blue Lotus on the um, on the marketplace right now. You have to kind of dig around. Etsy is a great source. Well, I have um, heard, actually, though, I will say this, that people have had nothing happen to a lot of the time. So I was told mm-hmm. you have to find like fresh whatever yeah you you have to i would suggest doing background research on the vendor with whom you're considering doing business um but yeah th- that's why i brought up the anxiolytic effects because i'm very interested in different um herbal combinations and um holistic approaches to managing anxiety and sleep um frequently you'll see people combine blue lotus with kava kava in the evenings to help them sleep um, or even canna, which is uh, actually like more of a euphoriant, but it can kind of help smooth out the canna experience. You can people do smoke it. I've never smoked it. Not my not my style. Um, but I've had it as a as a tincture and as a tea, and both. Um, I, I'd put them on par with um, maybe having like a glass of wine, like enough to feel relaxed. Somebody said but it was kind of like, like fully yeah. Somebody I talked to said it was actually kind of comparable to Amanita muscaria. Like it doesn't do a ton, but you can like smoke it or take it and it kind of has a little something mm-hmm. makes you like sleepy kind of a thing. It's a great thing to have like when you're soaking in a hot bath and you know you have to go to sleep soon. It's like kind of, you know, help help you unwind and kind of get ready to sleep. Okay. I found what I was looking for too. It says modern drugs used to treat erectile dysfunction act locally to facilitate penile smooth uh, muscle relax- uh, relaxation, but a new generation of centrally acting agents uh, is in clinical trials. One of these, apor- apomorphine, 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 something like that, a dopamine receptor agonist. That's what I, I drawn a blank on dopamine receptor uh was recommended in 2000 by a committee of specialists of the food and drug administration to treat impotence so and i saying that i'm going to bring up an image now that i feel like is relevant to that what was that drug again i want to write it down (laughs) so so here we have what's known as the uh, wow look at that yeah, so here we I was have. I going to the... say, look at that juicy boner. <laughs> um, Sorry. No, you're fine. So here we have. Um, this is called the light bulb of Dendra. Um, 
people think it looks like a light bulb. Um, and you have the jet holding it up at the end. I have a different take on it. Um, it's supposedly supposed to represent like the beginning of the universe or something along those lines. Um, but look at look at the the base of the bulb. That's that's a lily in my opinion. That's blue lotus. And then you have what mm-hmm. looks like you know a sperm or something coming out of there. I mean, could they have known that it ha- had that effect and that probably helped with you know their whatever you want to call it, um, sexual, you know, escapades or whatever. Uh, I think that that's a possibility. It could lead to, maybe that's their thought. Like that's what led to the explosion of human beings or something like that. You know, you could look at it from a purely symbolic, you know, beginning of the universe way, but I'm trying to look at it from like an alternative way, as opposed to the crazier people that are saying that that's an actual light bulb in ancient Egypt. So it's not a light bulb it's a boner and like we (laughs) see that symbology like i'm not i'm not trying to be flip or dismissive um but like i mean like it's it's like priapus right like like these like male genitalia or the phallus if we want to be like super i don't know clinical um i mean this kind of imagery shows up again as like ritualistic testament to fertility to agricultural success to um having healthy families and children Uh, i mean these are images we see in rome and in greece as well so it wouldn't surprise me even a tiny bit if if that's sort of the symbology that is meant to be represented here that's what it that's what it looks like blue lotus with like a sperm thing happening i don't know Mm -hmm. that's just my opinion um but yeah, I mean, you know, people will talk about like Baghdad battery. Is it possible that they understood electrical charge? Yeah, it's possible. They probably didn't, oh. you know. Wait, I want to talk about my wands. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, and actually, this is literally why I grabbed them because I was like, oh shit, the Baghdad battery or like wands of Horus will come up. So these are wands of Horus, um, and they're this one's zinc and this one's copper and um if you look at some ancient egyptian artwork you'll frequently see um statues standing and holding these copper in the right hand zinc in the left and um they are voltaic like if you um they they pass about between 1.8 and 2.2 volts between them and when you hold them you can definitely feel like a little bit of a tingle they're used now in like metaphysical practices meditation qigong yoga breath work things like that um but um you know i i do look the the egyptians themselves had an extremely sophisticated and rich um religious tradition you know we'll call it a magical tradition now but it's a religious tradition and they were using things that deliberately uh induced different somatic experiences including things like you just said the baghdad battery but like using tools like this during meditation or during practices to basically spin up and feel some kind of energy whether that actually does anything metaphysically is obviously a completely different subject but you can feel it like like i'm holding these right now and like if i grip them hard i can feel like the tingle from holding them um and i bring that up because like this was a, a culture and a civilization that was very into these kinds of practices and then saw them as part of a, a just a function of daily life that you just did. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I'm not totally sure where I'm going with this other than to say that, you know, the Egyptians had like this extraordinarily rich and sophisticated cosmology that they built rituals and practices that weren't just reserved for these like ecstatic states or community events. They were just folded into the experience of daily life. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, and th- those are interesting. I'll have to check that out. I believe you. I'll say this. I trust Leah. She's skeptical to the point where, um, you know, as, as somebody that, like, I interact with a lot of people on a daily basis on different social media platforms and through the podcast and stuff like that, I really trust Leah's opinions on things uh, more than most. So take that for what you will. Uh, I do want to bring up another image. Here we have... Um, I think this is a temple of uh which one is this temple dendra maybe um you also have so you see that the middle um relief you it looks like they're holding she's holding something i think that those are blue lotus you can kind of see um mm-hmm. the tips they look very blue lotusy, and then the one on the right um looks very much like mushrooms to me. I mean, I don't know if what you guys see, but those look like mushrooms. Like oh yeah, coming, they totally do. Coming out of a yeah, thing. yeah, like coming out of like the little like yeah. the uh, like vase or whatever. And and actually, there's a lot of there's currently a lot of interest in the mycology of ancient Egypt um, because of some of the stuff that we're talking about right now, but also because you know they had a lot of knowledge of stuff like that too. And who knows? Um, you know, maybe they had superior knowledge or cause they traveled so much, they were able to, you know, come in contact with other people that had that knowledge and take it back with them or who knows. So, um, there is Can a I research a gate paper. Hold on. There is a research gate paper on what I'm talking about, but it is a little woo. I don't know. What do you think about research gate, Leah? Do you think it's credible or? I mean, it's just an aggregator for scientific papers, isn't it? Yeah. But I don't, I mean, there's some that are yes. more, cre- I feel like there's some that are more credible because there is some oh, other yeah. ones on there that I've seen that I'm like, ah, I don't know if this is right. You know, there's a really great index of, um, I mean, this is totally an aside, but when it comes to like looking at journals, particularly peer reviewed journals, like there's whole, like we could talk, dude, we could do a whole fucking episode on like the reproducibility crisis and the issues of peer review and stuff. But there's basically like ranking systems for journals. Um, because there's one that's called like the journal of scientific exploration that a lot of this like kind of woo woo um stuff gets published in and it's not like a super high ranking journal but it is um still peer reviewed and kind of meets the criteria for being considered a legitimate academic journal um and which is my very long way of saying that researchgate um along with i think it's academia.com and like even JSTOR, like these are reliable platforms in the sense that they're great at aggregating and providing research materials. Um, but if you're using papers from there, it's usually good to also just do a quick spot check on the journal itself and its reputation and how it sort of ranks against other journals in, in its field or against sort of the entire landscape of journalistic pub- or excuse me, scholastic publishing in general. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I was just curious. I know, mm-hmm. you know, you know a lot about that. I mean, I read a ton of scientific papers, but I also still use my own BS detector on some of them because I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Uh, Shane, um, you were going to say something. I apologize for cutting you off. I just wanted to finish that thought. Oh, you're not going to apologize. I was just going to ask. Um, well, I don't know if I, maybe I had missed it because, like I said, I hadn't read some of this. But the hunter-gatherers, such as Egypt, having water buffalo, ox, and things like that with massive amounts of poo compared to today. I imagine those mushrooms were everywhere and the hunter-gatherers aren't going to pass them up. So 
you know, somebody's going to be taking these things, correct? Eating them, figuring yeah. out something. There's a, if you want to know about prehistoric Egypt, there's actually a great, um, it's on Audible. They're called um, uh, The Great Courses, I believe is the name of them. Oh, so good. Yeah, the totally one Totally worth an Audible subscription alone. The, the one on ancient Egypt, the guy's name's Bob Breyer, um, and it's, a, it's really good. So, like, look, I like some of the alternative stuff and, like, just, you know, different thought experiments and things like that. He's going to give it to you straight, but I don't think most people understand, like, um, like I said, prehistoric Egypt or the mythology behind their creation stories and stuff like that. So if you want to learn about that and then also learn about the actual archaeology and then compare it, like, if you like the alternative stuff, I recommend knowing both. So that you can go and have a conversation with anybody. If you're going to talk to an academic, you understand their point of view. You can have a real conversation with them, vice versa. If you believe in the fringe stuff and you want to converse with an archaeologist and, and get into some sort of debate or something, it's best to know what they know. Um, so I would just point that out. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, I, I think the other thing, look, I was recently speaking with a close friend of mine, um, almost on this very subject about how these two things can be true at the same time, which is that we can have um, at least a rudimentary knowledge and understanding of these ancient civilizations and also have huge broad swaths of their culture and behaviors and technologies and beliefs and religions that remain completely inscrutable and mysterious to us. Um, and that space, this mysterious space, is much, much larger than I think people generally recognize. And you can say that and talk about it in ways that don't necessarily validate um, pseudoscience or, um, you know, uh, like like junk science. Um, and I, I always feel like that's an important part of the conversation, especially when we're talking about these um, ancient civilizations. So there's just so much we still haven't quite figured out or understood. And we're also so prone both at the academic and at the lay level to kind of retroactively apply our current culture and social and uh, mythological frameworks back onto these people, which does us a disservice in understanding them and also does them a disservice in the sense that it fails to allow the kind of um, richness and complexity of these cultures and civilizations to stand on their own merits. And I just want to say, yeah, I'm still on this picture, Chase. You got a problem with it? I'm not done yet. And this is a picture from the Temple of Hathor. So, Chase. Hell yeah, you know, we know Hathor. Get lost, bro. Get lost. All right. Let's move on. Um, so, yeah, that was my whole spiel on Egypt, pretty much. Um, there is some evidence... Um, here, let me pull this up. I have a timeline. I actually have a timetable that I found on an archaeological website that I'm going to read through just to give everybody like the progression of dates of all this stuff. Because I know we're going to go through it, but I think it's good to just have an overview. One of the first psychoactive compounds found uh, or proof of is beer um, from 11,000 BC in Israel. Um, and, you know, Bob Breer or Bob Breyer, who I mentioned from the Great Courses, the Ancient Egypt one, talks about how in ancient Egypt or ancient civilizations, wherever there was the bread place, next door was the beer place because you use the yeast to make the mm -hmm. beer. So that's a that's a good point, uh, especially if you're looking into doing your own research, uh, if that kind of stuff. I think that's important. So, um, yeah, and, and beer made water drinkable. Like yeah. that's why they drank it, right? Because like standard water usually would make you pretty sick. So right. if you had weak beer, it was usually safe to drink. Absolutely. Um, you have hemp or cannabis found 8200 
BC Japan. Shane, will you do me a, a favor though? Now that I'm thinking about, it, I feel like I saw an article about maybe hominids or even Neanderthals cultivating cannabis or hemp in the Tibetan plain. I don't know if you can look that up for me. Just look up um, earliest cannabis cultivation on the Tibetan plain or something along those lines. See if you can find an article. Uh, But yeah, so Japan, that's the earliest archaeological evidence that we have is 8200 BC from Japan. Oh, there is a 7,000. Here, let me find this. Um, Seven. Okay, so yeah, here we go. Um, They found evidence of hemp. 500 year old? No, that's it's way older than that. Like talk like tens of thousands, Shane. See if you can find it. Maybe an ancient origins um, article. Um, anyways, so um, oh, okay, so Katal Huyuk, which is a Neolithic site in Turkey, uh, they found hemp woven fabric that dates back to seven thousand BC. Um, so that's pretty old, and that's on the. Um, that's on the you know that region. Actually, that's probably not too far from Gobekli Tepe in that area. So I wouldn't be surprised um, if you know cannabis has been used for a lot longer than we found evidence for. Um, all right, back to the timeline. I'll keep letting Shane look for that. Um, let's see, Beetle or Beetle. I think that's like Beetle. B e t e l. Uh, seven thousand yep, bright red juice. Yeah, or supposedly you can chew these. They used to wrap them in these leaves and make yeah. like quids, and then like chew them or something. You chew it. It makes your spit really red. That's, yeah, that's really what I was. The thing about. I found yeah. says that it ruins your teeth, basically. So, um, yep. <laughs> uh, that's seven thousand BC in Thailand. I think the paper I um, was reading about it was talking about its use in India, um, but it's probably all over the Asian. Uh, continent, I would imagine. Um, Henbane, 6,000 BC, Egypt. So the Egyptians were dabbling in those dark arts. I I, ha- I tried Henbane over the summer. Um, Did you? So I found Ooh. a... Yeah, Tro- so, tropane's so have, no have good. A, yeah, I have a story here. So um, I, I know someone who basically does... He basically makes like edibles, but using like different uh, delirians and dissociatives. Um, and I had uh, a henbane edible, super, super low dose. Um, they also have like Amanita edibles and things like that. Um, interesting. Um, didn't feel especially remarkable or in, like psychoactive to me. Um, but, you know, um, just part of the experience. I, I certainly understand why it is used in ritual because it, I definitely could tell that if I had had a few times more than what I had, it would probably would have been pretty unpleasant and intense. Well, it's definitely an altered state um, of consciousness. It's just the problem with tropanes mm-hmm. is they're very biologically harmful, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, tryptamines and phenethylamines usually aren't. So, Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I, that's like kind of, I wouldn't have tabbed you for that, but I, I that's very, very interesting. Now I'm starting I, I to see you. I have an your... adventurous spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see a little, that... little Nora coming out in you right now with the whole. Uh, so, you, were you talking about the, arts. where it was first? Where they they first said it was uh, the cannabis was located, or when they first found it used? Because I found it was like cultivated, like ten thousand we... BCE. No, one point two million years in eastern China. <laughs> they found. I can't find it then. 
Look up, Hi, look Jamie. up ancient, ancient. <laughs> look up, look up, look this up, Shane. Look this up. Ancient origins, Tibetan cannabis. Just look up those words on Google and see what comes up. Incredible. Yeah, just just type it into Google and see what Google says. That's right. That's right. Or you uh, could ask uh, that new for, chat. For the GPC record, that's three. exactly what uh, I typed in. Uh huh. Chatbot. Um, that's that's Shane's new overlord. Hey, and to be fair, I completely forgot what we even talking about, man. At this point, no. So we're talking about weed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, scientists believe they located where it was cannabis was first. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah, the Tibetan plane. It was like freaking. I, I just told you. I'm no, pretty sure you're gonna want to find that. it. I'm, I'm reading something wrong. It's bunk, man. You are bunk. All right, moving on. Yeah, um, better move on. All right. So henbane, very interesting. Uh, again, tropanes. There's, we've talked a lot about that on the, the podcast. Different types of psychoactive compounds, um, you know, get classified in different ways. Um, so like tryptamines would be like psilocybin, DMT, uh, things like that. Phenethylamines, I think um, you get like mescaline, MDMA. Um, you know, you can talk about disassociatives, you got ketamine, you've got, um, tropanes, as we just mentioned, henbane and datura and all those mm-hmm. scoplamine. Um, so yeah. Oh, and, and, I've had datura too. Oh, you have? We're going to get to that yeah. in a second. Um, Sorry. No, no, you're this fine. This feels like a penthouse letter for drugs. I just want to talk no, about all the stuff fine. I've done. <laughs> uh, so we mentioned water lilies, 6,000 BC, Egypt, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, as I mentioned, 6,000 BC in the Sahara, which were those, um, uh, Tassil, uh, Al, uh, Ajir, that site that we talked about from the Terrence McKenna Food or the Gods with the shaman, uh, Bigay. Um, wine, I think most people can identify with this, 5,800 BC in Georgia, uh, the country, not the state. Um, opium poppy. Um, so this, again, these are just the archeological finds. Obviously these things have been used for a long time. These are just the finds. So this is opium and poppy 5,600 BC. And that was actually found in Italy, believe it or not. Um, hmm. deadly nightshade. Now this is a tropane you're going to want to stay away from or known as belladonna. Uh, and that was found in Romania in 4,500 BC. Um, mead, I don't, I guess, do they mean beer or is mead something different than beer? No, mead is like a honey wine. Is yeah, that... mead made out of honey, so yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't know what mead is. That's why. Um, Forty-two hundred BC found in Spain. Uh, Harmel or Paganum harmala, um, four thousand BC in the Caucasus and Egypt. So this is a very fascinating one. Uh, Paganum harmala is an MAO inhibitor. Uh, if you don't know what an MAO inhibitor is, it's one of the main co- uh, components. If you're doing an ayahuasca ceremony, you need one, yep. you know, plant or vine or whatever that contains the dimethyltryptamine, and then you need one that contains the MAO inhibitor. Um, MAO inhibitors actually act in a kind of a psychedelic way, I believe, even without any other thing added to it. I think it's I don't know what it does because I've never just done it, but I think it does have some psychoactive co- uh, components. There's a paper, I think it's Flattery and somebody else who wrote specifically on um, this that you can look up. Um, but yeah, do you, do either of you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, MAO, MAOIs, monoam, monoamine, whatever inhibitors, like they're also, I mean, just to bring this kind of full circle to modernity, they're like one of the first generation of antidepressants. They're also like, if you don't respond to atypical antidepressants or SSRIs or SNRIs, they'll put you on MAOIs. Um, and they're noteworthy because they literally interfere with every single drug on the fucking planet. Like once you go on MAOIs, you are not going to be able to take pretty much any other prescription medications. And St. John's wort, which is frequently used as a supplement to help with depression, is a low-grade MAOI. Okay. That's good information. Um, and again, there's different, um, you know, they find harming and stuff all throughout, you know, South America. There was, I think we'll... I think I might have more information on it. We'll get to it in a minute. But they found a shaman's pouch um, in Peru, I believe, or Bolivia, one of those two. Uh, it was like a fox snout pouch that had, you know, bufotine, harmala, all basically everything you would need for any sort of concoction uh, under the sun. So, um, again, people are very – imagine living – you know, we now we have all these distractions, right? We have cell phones and apps and, you know – all these Twitter. different things, Twitter, Twitter beefs, you know, we've got it all. Um, but at the end of the day, um, going back in time and just thinking about not having any of that, you know, the world would be your video game or your Twitter or whatever. And you just have to walk around. There's people probably just eating random stuff. Oh, what's that? Let me try that. Oh, let's figure this in. Oh my God. I met God, you know, or who knows? Um, so you have to just think about it like that. Like, they didn't have anything, you know, I'm sure there was people that still went about their day-to-day. -day. There was some version of our day-to-day -day back then. Uh, but when you get bored, again, there's not really much to keep your um, attention. So I imagine a lot of people were doing a lot of crazy stuff with nature that, you know, we probably don't even, can't even fathom today. Shane? Mm -hmm. For sure. <laughs> this guy's... Oh... <laughs> Okay, so on this list, and this is going to sound weird, and I don't know if these are drugs or if they just put this on here. So one of them's tea. Okay, I guess you, maybe because tea has caffeine. Um, this mm -hmm. says camellia. Camellia sinensis or sinensis. I don't know. Uh, that was found in 3500 BC in Xinjiang, China. Um, lettuce. <laughs> What? Oh, Again, probably wild lettuce. Oh, okay. Is, they're they're probably have... talking about wild lettuce. Uh, does that yeah. have psychoactive? So, um, like, yeah, not like romaine or bib lettuce, dude. Like, so wild lettuce, same deal. The devil's uh, super lettuce, similar baby. To something like... no, that's called cannabis. Um, no, so so wild <laughs> lettuce is super similar to like, uh, not super similar, but it's, it's similar to something like um, blue lotus or ghost pipe in the sense that it's you, or even kratom. Um, it's used basically for pain management and mitigation um, and anxiety. Um, See, and that's actually, why you're here, Leah. I would have had no it. idea. I would have no idea about this. I'm, 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 I'm an inveterate fucking nerd with an Elizabeth Holmes voice, but instead of grifting people with blood shit, I just talk about drugs on the internet. Um, but yeah, people, like, you can grow it, and people will reduce it down to what effectively looks like black tar heroin, like that kind of, like, black, thick resin, and then, like, smoke it or dab it or eat it. Um, also sold on Etsy. Um, I bring that up because if anyone's curious. I mean, all this stuff is legal. Etsy is a great resource if you want to learn and explore these different things. Um, and there's also a really great uh, herbology or herbologist subreddit as well. 
Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, Leah out here dropping the knowledge. Dropping that knowledge. I know that Kratom's also like a recovering heroin addicts and stuff often replace it. Mm-hmm. So they, they start taking that, so. Yep. Super, super addictive, but legally available. Um, acts on a number of the brain's receptors, serotonin receptors, dopamine, um, pain receptors, um, yeah, I, I want to maybe next when we do an episode about your whole story, Shane, you can talk more about because I want to ask you about questions like because I have a couple other friends that are former addicts um, that I just some people can never touch anything again, and other people are like completely fine later on with just you know like cannabis or alcohol. You know, so it just depends. So I want to talk to you about that later on, but. Um, so yeah, tea, lettuce. We're getting to the real hard hitters here. Next one, another hard hitter, and maybe Leah knows about this one. Cider, cider. Yeah, like hard cider, dude. It's just alcohol. Okay, twenty five hundred BC, Spain. So mm-hmm. um, again, like when we think about alcohol, it's really all about making water potable and drinkable. Um, that's why everyone. I mean, even little kids drink ale and cider and mead and wine and shit uh back in the day because like regular water would just make you super sick yeah i mean that makes total sense um ephedra 2000 bc in mm-hmm. china um now there is some speculation that ephedra is either a component or maybe even itself soma i disagree highly with that but that is one of the lesser candidates ephedra is a stimulant um also sometimes called mormon tea because uh, Church of Latter-day Saints obviously prohibits hot caffeinated beverages. You can drink cold caffeinated beverages. Um, to be quick and dirty about it, it's that the hot beverages make you horny, so you're not supposed to drink them. Um, but uh, when Joseph Smith was leading them from upstate New York out to Nauvoo, Illinois, and then out to Zion in Utah, they drank tons of Mormon tea, which was basically steeped ephedrine, and it would keep them going and traversing uh, when they were pioneering on the route out west. Um, super intense on blood pressure. Um, it's a, um, a appetite suppressant, a stimulant. Um, the closest thing you're going to have to that right now is like cold medicine or bronchade. Like a lot of bronchodilators rely on ephedrine, which is of course the standard version of this. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. And um, so yeah, it is one of the lesser options for or candidates for soma i don't like that they have found obviously ephedra and pottery and stuff in that area but yeah not my thing there this one says 2000 bc south africa have you ever heard of bouphone b-o-o-p-h-o-n-e or bouphony i don't know i've never heard of that before hmm i haven't either interesting um okay now we get to the one you mentioned which is jimson weed or datura um recently there was an archaeological find that they found in california in a cave called pinwheel cave where they thought um it was a depiction of a galaxy a spiral galaxy but then they started finding these little quids up in the ceiling and these quids are things you ball up and and chew on and masticate um and uh they found detura quids i'm sorry what do you do with it, Mike? You, you masticate. Say it again to the audience. Yeah, you masticate. That means to <laughs> chew. I know what Shane's thinking, Got bro. It. This is not that podcast, bro. So save it for that. You, the Roswell UFO Symposium. Um, but, okay, so deteroquid, so you're chewing it. Um, again, they thought the pinwheel was a spiral galaxy, but now they're realizing, and you would think, oh, maybe they ate the detura and then 
that's what they came up with the symbol or looked into the sky. No, it's actually if you look at the very top of a Datura flower, it looks exactly like that pinwheel. So they that this was basically like a ceremonial cave where they were. I don't even. I don't think they're worshiping it, but that's you know that was the main motivation. What was going on there? So. But yeah, you can find that article if anybody's interested. There's a a paper on it too. Um, did you want to discuss Datura, Leah? Oh no! Other than it sort of exists in the same space as um, of Delirians. Actually, I have a de- like. So the deal with Datura is the dosing cycle on it is like really, really narrow. Like, so the difference between an interesting time and a really fucking bad time is very, very narrow. And plus, people generally will eat like seed pods and seeds. Um, so then you're also dealing with like the variability of like the biological compound instead of like the standardized chemical compound. Um, again, something I've had in an edible at an extremely low dose. Um, it's something I personally have zero interest in exploring at a truly psychoactive dose, but um, the internet of course is awash in stories about people who find detura seeds and eat a bunch and then have a really bad dissociative delirium time. It's basically like being in a really sickly fever dream for a few hours. Um, I can't conceivably imagine why people would do it in a pleasurable way, but I don't know. There's no accounting for taste, right? No, so that's interesting, the delirium aspect that you mentioned, because the last mm-hmm. time we had Dr. Andrew Gallimore on, um, we were talking about the different types, like we were talking earlier, like tryptamines, phenethylamines, tropanes, and he was saying that, um, you know, we were talking about the nature of reality and maybe, you know, how like when you take psilocybin or one of these other psychic, like tro- uh, tryptamines, you can kind of see like, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get too woo, but maybe what you're you're seeing is actually superposition that's why things flow in a different oh, way you know and, and like i don't know we're just kind of snowball and spit spitball and that kind of a thing um but then he, we were talking about seeing things that aren't there right because that's the misconception about psychedelics and like pop culture is that you're going to take acid you're going to see a purple elephant dancing you know across the room or whatever and that's not the case. You see the things that are there and they just flow differently or they reorganize differently or your pareidolia gets kind of disabled and you're seeing maybe more of, you know, you can even go to like the Donald Hoffman, the case against reality. Like maybe you're seeing more of that. Maybe we're disabling this built in pattern recognition and you're actually seeing what the fabric of reality is or peeling it back a little bit. I don't know. But anyways, his point about tropanes was it activates a part of your brain um, where you actually might be seeing visuals that aren't there. So you mentioned delirium. Maybe some of these crazy stories do come from these tropanes because maybe these people really felt like they were talking to somebody and that somebody wasn't really there, right? So um, just an interesting anecdote about tropanes. And they are not pleasant, and they are very biologically um, you know, hazardous, and you got to be very careful. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it... Uh, <laughs> I mentioned it, um, I think, was it last night? Yeah, it was last night. You know, it's the, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but dosis sola facit venenum, which means the dose makes the poison, which is the famous Paracelsus Mm -hmm. uh, quote. Um, And that's true. And that goes for everything. But specifically, I think it applies to more things like this because 
a lot of these things are very poisonous uh, at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tryptamines are actually relatively safe. I think psilocybin's really the safest one on the LD50 scale, I believe. Um, but, yes. Yeah. So. Um, cannabis. Yeah, yeah cannabis, obviously. Um, uh, duh. <laughs> well, I think I read obviously. for somebody to to and in, in take hope. a lethal dose it's like eating like 200 pounds of hash or like something insane like you wouldn't be able to eat that amount of anything so you know so it's just one of those kinds right. of a, um, hold my beer <laughs> um all right so now we get to fly agaric or amanita muscaria 1500 bc found in asia um amanita is prevalent mm-hmm. i see them all the time when i go on our annual camping trip in michigan um there are these beautiful bright uh red caps with the archetypal white dots on them um usually found in coniferous forests or pine forests um there is you know there's an argument over um is there is there really a relation between um i forget what there's a term the relationship between the fungi and the um uh like the trees and stuff Drawing a blank. I'm having all symbiosis. Symbi- no, it's not that. It's something like that, though. Um, I'm having a brain fart tonight. Many of them. Um, but uh, yeah, so you have fly Garrick. So again, that's the argument. You have, um, you know, uh, sacred mushroom in the cross, and all this argument. Jesus was a mushroom, and uh, the arguments for all that. I don't like fly Garrick or Amanita. I've done it once. I didn't really feel much i got tired um i don't really feel like there's much there compared to the some of the other like psilocybin and stuff like that i don't know i don't know how you feel about it but yes so my experience with amanita uh, so um i'll preface this by saying one of the beauties of being a bachelor with no mortgage husband or kids is i get to have all kind of weird hobbies and i'm super into mushroom foraging um, and have foraged amanitas, and if you parboil them, you can eat them without any kind of ill effect, no GI distress, no dissociative or psychoactive effects. It's just like eating any other kind of mushroom. Um, I've never had them um, in uh, with the use case of them being psychoactive. I'm interested in it because I think that they are kind of woven into a lot of the uh, indigenous shaman practices, particularly on the steppes in Asia, the, the Asian steppe and Siberian steppe. Um, and then also in the in the Baltic states, which I'm of Baltic extraction, and then also, you know, um, in the Scandinavian practices. Um, it does seem like, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier about the utilization of them within like kind of like Viking culture, or like berserkers or whatever. I don't know how much of that is like accurate versus how much of it is sort of a um, confabulation in like modern society. Um, but I do think it's really interesting. And these are kind of like the most iconic mushrooms. They're the little red toadstools with the little white caps and the little white dots uh, will wash off if there's a rainstorm or something. And they grow over, like you said, coniferous so forests, if you, forests if you they are, grow all over the place. If you are interested, though, you do have to decarboxylate them to get out the ibotanic acid, which is the neurotoxic aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, you have to either dry them out to like a crisp um, or um, cook them in a, in a high heat. Um, some people make tincture. Yeah. Again, you just you got to get rid of that ibotanic acid and convert it into muscimol, which is the psychoactive component. And actually, I think they were working on 
using muscimol as like a sleep aid, but some one cool. person or something out of their the test group or something had a psychedelic experience and they had to kill the whole thing. That was on an episode can't, of can't let anyone experience that. Yeah, that was on um, an episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. It was actually pretty interesting. So the um, the other thing, and actually, you may have some insight into this because again, I don't know how much of this is sort of post hoc mythology versus reality. Um, but like the idea that these would be eaten by reindeer and then like reindeer piss would be ingested as yeah. basically a bypass to, There's to videos. actually have these kinds you of can, experiences. Yeah, you can go online. There's videos of the reindeer um, eating the, the Amanita through the snow. Um, but mm-hmm. you could, so like, I don't know who figured this out, but either human urine or reindeer urine, it's got to be passed through, I think the... Uh, the kidneys or the liver and it must do what i'm talking mm-hmm. about on a fresh level you know what i'm saying like so they're not gonna cook them or do what it's they fresh, need to cooked. so like right out of the ground instead of you know you you got to get rid of that toxins somehow so i think you know if that mm-hmm. doesn't kill the reindeer and they want to do that and then the person wants to drink that i, I guess that's the that's the connection, hey man, right? You do you, boo. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. That's that's it's not. But there is a video, uh, a couple videos on it. Now I don't go into the whole Santa Claus was a mushroom and it's all symbolic, man. Like I don't really necessarily get it's into all mushrooms. It's yeah, mushrooms yeah. all the way down. Yeah, like. there you go. Uh, I don't get into that, but I do think you know. Obviously, Siberian shamans have used it, like you said. That's proven fact, and reindeers do eat them and people have drinking piss so i mean i don't know where else to go with that one but that's I, you know so in, the jesus was a mushroom and it was fly garrick if, if the whole jesus mush there's something to the jesus was a mushroom thing marco allegro uh you know who was a scholar um who kind of turned against the church and wrote this book and then it made all this crazy uh controversy and he's saying you know, based on all these transcriptions that he did that Jesus, it was a Christianity, was a fertility cult and Jesus was a mushroom. Now, I don't, I, I, it would be more believable to me if it was like psilocybin, right? Like then I'd be like, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, because when you come down, you do want to be like a better person and like help the world. And like, I could see that archetype being funneled into like a person at some point or being embodied into a person, uh, as like a mythos, you know, to, to push, um, humanity in a direction. But I don't see, and I don't know if how you feel about that, but I don't see the fly Garrick or Amanita thing coming to fruition as any sort of Jesus was a mushroom. No. That's that's it. Just no. I I don't think so. Either. All right. I like it. Um. So we'll keep it moving because I don't want to spend too much time on that. Cause it doesn't really interest me because I don't believe it. Um. Mandrake, another tropane, fourteen hundred B.C. Egypt. Egypt's really getting into those tropanes, huh? They really love those tropes. Um. I don't have any experience with most tropanes. Um, so I don't really have anything to offer. Um, I've done a couple, um, but yeah, I don't. Yep. I, I've, um, I, I've no, I have no experience with Mandrake, but I'm familiar with it in the sense that it's frequently used in like traditional, like witchcraft kind of spells. Um, it's treated, you know, I think symbolically, literally as like people or like homunculi, um, 
in, in the practicing and creation of uh, different rituals in, I think, like kind of the Western witchcraft traditions. Shane's my homunculi. He's my Are you homunculus. Guys Facebook official? He's my homunculus. <laughs> He's a manifestation of my inner theater. Um, all right, moving on. Etopa. Yeah. All right. So now we get to Urgot, which is a, we'll come back up in a little bit when we start discussing the Eleusinian mysteries. Uh, but evidence was found in 300 BC from Spain. Um, and look, um, you know, I know I've said some things in the past, but, you know, if you really want to get into that topic, one, one book I really recommend is uh, The Road to Eleusis, um, which is great. It's kind of where we got to where we are with the idea that the Eleusinian Mysteries had um, psychoactive compounds as part of the, you know, the Kekion uh, as part of the Eleusinian Mysteries um, being a psychedelic mm-hmm. brew. Um, and then off of that, you have Brian Merescue, who wrote The Immortality Key. Now, oh, yeah. I've, I've been skeptical yep. about certain points of it, and I have voiced my concern with the fact that he's never tried any of these things and wrote a whole book uh, about them. Uh, but aside from that, I do think you should read it because there is a lot of archaeological evidence. He does spend a lot of time on it. Um, and I do think it's worth the read in terms of, you know, getting information. And then you can determine, your, you know, it gets kind of religious. Um, so that's the, another aspect of it that I don't really, um, I think that it was pushing towards more of a religious explanation as opposed to um, misinterpreted metaphysics is where I would have gone uh, with it. But whatever, again, I, I'm not here to, I think there's a lot of valuable information in there. So, um, so yeah, that's Urgot. Um, now we get to Kava. Um, <laughs> 850 AD in Oceania. I don't know much about Kava. Do you? Yes. K- K-A-V-A. Man, I can't believe I went into this show thinking i'm not gonna have anything to say i don't know anything about this stuff um yeah so kava or kava kava uh, primarily comes from fiji uh you can buy it on amazon totally legal um it's basically a, a an anxiolytic um it, it's interesting uh for a couple of reasons um primarily among them is that it has reverse tolerance so what this means is that like your first few times having it you'll have to ingest a lot of it you drink it in a very particular fashion you basically put it with hot water in a little like um, like cheesecloth bag and like massage it um, and then drink it. It tastes very like piney. It, it's not an unpleasant flavor, but it has like this very kind of vegetal pine kind of flavor. Um, it also has a mild anesthetic property. So when you drink it, it makes your mouth slightly numb. And some, for some people that gives them a sense of nausea. Um, if no one is particularly interested in explicitly trying kava, um, Yogi Tea Company, which you can buy at your local supermarket, has a stress tea, which is um, saturated with kava. So have a couple bags of that on an empty stomach and you will feel very nice uh, and relaxed at the end of the day. Um, safe generally for daily use. It's not, not like super hepatoxic or um, nephrotoxic or anything. Um, and you can... Um, yeah, I mean, you also kind of, I think you see things like kava and kratom, like as we see people stepping back from alcohol consumption, but still seeking something to help them unwind, like we see kava kava becoming much more popular. The other thing to note about kava, which is interesting, is that it's a highly ritualized consumption practice. So it's typically served in like 
these like shells, like these half shells. And when people describe their consumption, let's say, oh, like I'd had like four or five shells of it. Um, but yeah, it's um super fascinating, powerful anxiolytic, feels a lot like having a couple glasses of wine, but without the hangover and like without the next day, like anxiety or depression. Absolutely. That sounds interesting. Um, and since we're on roughly the same region, I'll pull up a couple slides I made for our Easter Island. We did Easter Island part one, Easter Island part two, and Easter, Easter Island part uh, three. Easter Island part one is all the academic um, theories and hypotheses. hypotheses. Uh, part two is the fringe stuff. And part three is just kind of like an overview and going back over everything. So I really, if you're interested in Easter Island, actually, I, I'm really proud of our Easter Island series that Maurice and I did a couple of years ago. There's slide, they're all, they're both, or all of them are slideshow episodes. So uh, go check that out if you have not already. But since we were talking about that, I, I pulled a couple slides from that episode that I did. Uh, and we'll start with this one, which is... Um, while I was looking into Easter Island very heavily, um, I came to the conclusion that, so they got stuck on Easter Island, most likely from deforesting the island and building canoes. Um, and then they had rats that came with them on the island and the rats ate all of the palm nuts. Um, so all, or all, you know, all of the trees that were, would have been growing, uh, ceased to grow and then they used a lot of them and then the other thing is they ate a lot of the seabirds that were carrying um, se uh, you know seeds and stuff from other islands in their poo they ate a lot of those species to extinction so they were kind of they they st got they stuck themselves on the island basically they, they've 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 trapped themselves so now at that point I'm thinking so where are they getting food so the closest thing to if, without having canoes or let's say the canoes get old you're going to have to start fishing right off the edge or the reef or the shore. And I'm starting to think, okay, reef fish. Um, now you get into the idea that there was cannibalism on the island. People were going crazy and you could amount that to anything. It could be from stir crazy being trapped with people on this island. It could be a cult thing. You know, they had the, uh, um, the, uh, I forget the Manu, uh, uh, I forget the name, but the Birdman cult basically of Easter Island, um, and so I came up with this idea. I, I saw an episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia where they're talking about, I don't know, even know how to pronounce the, this big word, but it's ecti, ecti, alloyan toxin, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, and it's fish inebriation. So there, there's people that will eat fish. Primarily, I think it's Reunion Island is where he did his episode off the coast of Africa. Uh, and they boil these fish heads and... They don't know exactly why, but people that have these that eat these fish have hallucinations. They either have really intense dreams, or they get really, really messed up. Um, and some, I think I read one speculation that maybe they're eating um, psychoactive corals uh, that are then being, you know, left in the fish, and that's cool. what people are eating. Um, or even something else that they're eating that they just aren't aware of, maybe an algae or something like that. That's um, psychoactive. Um, so yeah, that was my idea. So, and then, you know, certain tropical fish, they can eat and produce LSD like effects. Like I mentioned, uh, no one knows why it happens. Again, the speculation is macro algae or green algae, uh, poisonous corals, as I mentioned. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of what 
what the idea was. And then in Hawaii, they do have these fish and it's known to be eaten and they're called the chief of ghosts because people have these ghostly apparitions and experiences and things like that. So um, sleep paralysis usually ensues, dizziness, loss of coordination. So I found that that was interesting looking at why, you know, these people turn to cannibalism and tribalism on Easter Island. So um, let's go to the next one. So this one, I found this on Easter Island too, this tree. I actually found it through looking through a bunch of pictures. I'm like, that looks like an acacia tree, which it is. It's acacia cabin uh, found on Easter Island. Uh, this picture is actually taken from Easter Island. Uh, many strains of the acacia tree and bushes found all over the world contain DMT. Uh, the strain found in mainland Chile uh, and South America definitely do, which is Easter Island's not that close to Chile, but it's part like Chile. It's part of the country of Chile. Um, but yeah, it's pretty far out there still. Uh, but again, seabirds and different things flying around. Um, so little is known about this specific acacia species. However, its leaves have been known to be mixed with tobacco and andinathera seeds to produce psychoactive hallucinogenic effects. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but a shamanic uh, fox uh, snout pouch found around 100, or 1000 AD, excuse me, South America contained bufatine. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce that next word. Benzoligonine, uh, BZE, cocaine, DMT, harmine, uh, and silicin. Um, we know that there is a connection between Easter Island and South America. They have found south american pre-columbian south american dna in the people of easter island so um again i'm suggesting that they definitely had knowledge of this kind of stuff so all right moving on i just want to throw that in there since we were talking about that part of the world and morning glory is in in uh baby or not, um, um hawaiian baby woodrose hawaiian baby woodrose yeah yeah um, lsa lsa um, so that was the old world that we were talking about on the timeline. Now we get to the new world, um, also known as the Western Hemisphere. Um, San Pedro uh, evidence has been found from 8600 BC in Peru. That's pretty old. Um, let's see here. Uh, Mescal bean, 8400 bc in texas so there you go chase go go find some uh some mescal bean um coca uh six thousand bc in peru uh peyote 3200 bc in texas now um i i do know a little bit i think as part of like a peyote tradition it's i think it's somewhat of a newer tradition for native americans uh, in the Southwest, meaning like the 1800s or something like that. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been used or people weren't aware of it. It just means that that's like the record of, I think, like a ceremonial consumption. Um, and again, the pre or the Colombians could have came in and just wiped everything out and erased all the records and stuff like that too, which is kind of what happened, uh, to most of Mesoamerica. So, um, you know, as well as Easter Island, um, so then we get to Sabil, uh, which is 2100 BC in Argentina. If you don't know what Sabil is, it's like a seed. Um, and then they grind it up. Uh, like it's kind of like that we were talking about, like Andinathera. Um, and then they use it as snuff. 
and it supposedly is mm. uh, DMT like effects. Um, yep. Super uh, common in shamanistic practices. Yeah. Um, then we get to, let's see here, uh, Coco, 1900, um, 1900 BC. Now, cacao is definitely used um, in the sacred mushroom rituals. Um, you know, the Toltecs, and you know, it's definitely part of um, the mushroom codices um, in their, their different uh, traditions. Uh, but again, you know, you think like chocolate, cocoa, cacao, um, yeah. Uh, tobacco, 1500 BC, North America. Um, tobacco, I mean, wild tobacco, um, interesting, you know, like back then it wasn't like what we think of as like cigarettes now, right? It was ceremonially used, uh, probably had different effects too. Um, I always thought about it like this too. Do you think like, let's say somebody grow like grew their own tobacco and then like rolled their own cigarette or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. they have like a relationship to that plant as opposed to just buying like a pack of cigarettes or something like that. So I'm wondering, you know, oh, yeah, for sure. Does that adds definitely to this, the sacrament or the, um, you know, that process of it. Yeah, I mean, you even see this if you read um, any of the recollections of people who grow their own cannabis or their own mushrooms. Um, or, I mean, shit, if we want to get totally, like, uh, leave it to beaver, people who have their own gardens and feel a personal connection with what they're growing and then eating, right? Like, it's a much more substantial personal connection uh, to the earth and to sort of the processes Um associated with growing and then you know sustaining yourself on it yeah absolutely um and then we get to psilocybin uh mushrooms uh 1000 bc guatemala um i will say this um i thought the origin of 5meo dmt um based on these two episodes hamilton morris did he did one um, where he thought it was this guy named Albert Most. Um, and that guy ended up being kind of like a fraud. Um, and he wrote, he thought he was the one that wrote this pamphlet, but it was really this guy named Nelson who, um, was this like crazy chemist guy that lived in like a, an abandoned bomb making shelter or something like that, like some crazy ass. And it's always a story cool. like that. He, Hamilton Morris did another episode where it was called the lazy, um, lazy lizard school of hedonism where uh this uh, uh lemaire's guy built the largest mdma lab in the side of a volcano and it looked like some sort of like evil uh e like uh like a guy like a bad guy from a movie's like evil lair or something like, like james that. bond yeah yeah, yeah james bond villain yeah and i keep saying hamilton uh hamilton's pharmacopoeia and i will say this um i don't know if anybody knows who that is that is a great resource. Hamilton Morris goes to all these places in the world. He does his homework. He's a chemist. He's a researcher. He has an excellent podcast, too. I was just listening to one the other night on um, the origins of the penis envy strain of uh, psilocybin. So um, if you're interested in all that kind of stuff, uh, definitely check out Hamilton Morris and Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia because um, he is a wealth of knowledge. So, 
Um, so yeah, oh yeah, so we were talking about psilocybin mushrooms. So my whole point was the five meo thing was um, my friend uh, Laura, who is the megalith hunter. On, um, she lives on Malta. She's been on the show a couple times. I'm actually doing an episode with her and my friend Sandy uh, on Sunday, where we're gonna oh, do cool. a, a review of Hancock uh, Graham Hancock series. Cause they're both. Dude, very I love fam- Sandy. <laughs> yeah, Sandy's awesome. They're both very familiar with um, his work. But Laura, um, Laura did a part on the um, uh, the you know Mesoamerican uh, psychedelic use, and then she also found something interesting. She sent me the paper. Um, it was possible five meo use in. Um, oh, I'm gonna butcher this right now. I gotta think of. Um, I can't, I'm, I'm having so many brain farts tonight. I just, I'm all over the place. Uh, but what are the big heads from Mesoamerica? Anybody, somebody type it in the comments. I'm, I'm just drawing a blank. I know it like the back of my hand and I just can't think of it. Um, the big heads in South America. Um, I don't know. I, I just can't. They're kind of, people don't really know a lot about them. I don't know. I might be the only only nerd out here. Anyways, this Mesoamerican um, civilization supposedly has all this toad iconography. Um, and one of these papers mentions possible 5-MEO use ritually going all the way back to then. So that there might be, yeah, the Olmecs. Thank you, Bridge, Ryan. Thank you, Olmecs. Um, I know. I was going crazy there. Uh, but yeah, so the Olmecs possibly were using 5-MeO D- uh, DMT way back then, um, which would reverse the timeline, which is a more really current timeline um, for that whole thing. So interesting stuff, but we got to keep moving. Oh, yeah, and look out for that that episode. It'll be Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time with Sandy and Laura, and we will give a very fair critique of Graham Hancock's um uh, new series on Netflix that's very controversial. So, ancient. Yeah, the, uh, the most dangerous series on Netflix. <laughs> well, I, I don't. And you know, like there's, I've seen. I don't know if you've watched. <laughs> do you watch documentaries on like Amazon and Netflix? Because there's some pretty crazy ones that if that's I the. It. I, if, I don't. Oh, I, I'm just giving you shit, dude. I haven't watched the TV show or a movie. In, no, like, no, no I, I know, but I, I I'm making. Anything. I'm making a little yeah, point I have a hard here. Time some docs I can. I'm making a little point here, which is that there's some of like, and you know, I love me some alien UFO stuff. There's some pretty crazy alien UFO stuff that, you know, like we're talking and I'm not going to mention names, but a lot of crazy people that have been all over the UFO Twitter lately being, uh, for their cult like, um, (laughs) behaviors over the last, however many years. Um, so like that kind of stuff is on there. So how is that not more dangerous than that? I don't know. Like you said, that's, it's, it's stupid. Um, and if they, they, a lot of them have turned down debates with them as well, which is also stupid. Like the only way um, to prove a point is to have an open conversation. And I think let the people decide if he's got a valid point, it'll shine through. If he doesn't have a valid point, it'll shine through. You know, like just you, we got to have these conversations. So can I say on top of that, isn't that what um, the whole disclosure process where was struggling with science wise too? Same, no one wanted to have the debate, even if the, the data and science and Stuff yeah, it's like there, Seth Showstack, that it, guy like really wanted to, to have yeah. the debate. So it's it's the same exact thing in both of them. No one wants to 
look for science don't make fun they don't of my know boyfriend, exists. Seth Showstack. I love Seth Showstack. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> hey, look, let me have a problematic fave, okay? I'm a big fan. I think he's really funny and smart. Okay, okay. All right, we'll move on. Uh, the yeah, stuff... more, dr- more drug chat. Let's not get political. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, well, we never. That's <laughs> Look, this is if you don't want politics or social stuff or anything, we're your show. We don't ever talk about it. And when it's come up in the past, I quickly uh, – diverge so uh but again we will give a fair critique aside from whatever other emotional um responses people have to it or his associations or whatever you want to say we're going to go strictly for the evidence on that one so um and if anybody knows this show they know i love both i love academic stuff and i love fringe stuff and i like to combine the two and come up with my own you know spin-off theories and hypotheses so um this stuff it says 800 bc chica chicha uh c-h-i-c-h-a you ever heard of that no okay we'll move on what about mate m-a-t-e 650 bc oh yeah i've had mate okay what's yeah, that mate. it's like it's um so it's like you drink it like a tea or another one of these highly ritualized things like kava to drink out of a gourd with like a metal s- straw with like a s- kind of spoon at the bottom yeah. um it has a lot of caffeine in it there's something about the uh molecular profile of the plant I, it may have a lot of l-theanine or something but it's generally considered like the caffeine in it doesn't make you as jittery as like plain black coffee um it's drunk hot it's also noteworthy because it is carcinogenic. Um, countries that um, ingest substantial amounts of it um, experience much higher rates of esophageal cancer and oral cancer. Um, it has like a very, it's like, it's basically tastes like matcha or like green tea. Um, you can buy it. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, might not be mainstream enough to buy at a grocery store, but yeah, it's available and accessible. Um, I think the, I think Peru, um, it may be like a national drink there or something. Okay, cool. Yeah, it says it was found in 650 BC in Argentina. A uh, different strain mm-hmm. of Jimson weed. Jimson weed. It says D. Stramonium, uh, 300 AD in Chile. Let's see here. Uh, Guayusa, Guayusa, G U A Y U S A. Never heard of that. Uh, 375 AD. In Bolivia. Wake up, Shane. Um now we get to Ola Huiqui. Ola Huiqui. Uh six eight this is like, <laughs> I, I'm pretty good at pronouncing things. To too. A white Chicago guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm pretty good at pronouncing things, I think, but this is terrible. I mean some of these things. Uh Olo Luiqui, uh six hundred eight ad mexico uh i po- <laughs> i pomoia uh 800 ad texas i don't know what that is and then this is going to be the craziest one of all because i don't know i've never even heard of this black drink 1050 ad illinois usa i assume that's somehow associated with the native americans at like chillicothe or um interesting yeah i don't know um but yeah so that's the basic timeline now i do you know i don't want to go too much longer 
I said we'd do roughly around uh, two hours, but I do want to get to the Lucinia Mysteries really quick. Yes. And um, anything else? Oh, Lucinia Mysteries. We're going to do Lucinia Mysteries and Soma, and I'll try and keep it concise because I do know a decent amount of both, so I don't think there will be too much of me reading off of um, anything. Um, so just as a um, point of reference, is there anything you guys want to add or anything uh, before right, we get I going, need to shout out to Toby so he'll stop crying in the chat. Shout out to Leah. Would you please say hi to Toby? Excuse He's me. crying because he yeah, needs Yeah, I was going to say, Toby, Toby wanted me to give him a shout out. So, you two goons, sit back. Toby, thank you so much for joining us this evening on Mind Escape. Very excited to have you here on this episode discussing metaphysics and psychedelics. All right. That's All right, wild. Mike, back to you. I like it. I like it. Um,. All right, well, let's get to, all right. Um, all right, let me pull this up here. I have a little thing written out on, do you want to do Soma or Eleusinian Mysteries first? Let's do the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, and, and these are near and dear to my heart, um, super fascinated by occult and esoteric traditions. And the Eleusinian Mysteries are kind of at the heart of a lot of the, like, not necessarily the exact or actual practices, but sort of the imagination of um, what started these, like, occult and mystery school traditions. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so the Eleusinian Mysteries um, were basically initiations that were held annually um, in ancient Greece. Um, they were meant as tribute to the cult of Demeter and Persephone. Um, and what's really fascinating about them is that very, very little still is known about them. Everything we know um, or understand about them is um, highly speculative and extremely complex. Um, and, and I say this because the people that participated in them were basically sworn to secrecy under substantial penalty. And so there are different reasons why people would participate in these acts, whether it's priests or lay people or community members. Um, but they were practiced annually. And um, they were um, basically, now my understanding, and please correct me here, but my understanding is that they were almost like a passion play, like as we would think about it with Christ, only like really kind of exploring the rebirth of Persephone. So rather than this Christ figure, they're talking about Persephone, who um, I believe died and then reascended from Hades um, and then uh, cyclically through the seasons would spend part of the year above ground among the living and then part of the year with Hades in the underworld. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, so basically, um, you know, the cult of Persephone or whatever was an agrarian cult representing, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. kind of like the life cycle of uh, the grain, if you will. Um, yeah, and then I think a lot of people know the myth of Persephone being taken into the underworld and taking a bite of the pomegranate and having to spend, um, you know, two-thirds of the year down there or whatever, uh, only to reemerge in mm -hmm. the spring. Um, you have the lesser mysteries and the greater mysteries. The lesser mysteries were the mysteries that um, happened in the springtime. And anybody could do that one, and they could do it as many times as they wanted. But the greater mysteries, which happened in the fall, could you could only participate once in your life, and you had to participate. So that, I thought that, I think that that's very compulsory. interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, and so um, the Eleusinian Mysteries ran roughly from 1400 B.C., 
to nine two three or I'm sorry uh thirty nine or three hundred ninety two I believe somewhere around there so fourteen fifty to like three ninety A.D. roughly is, and you know, then um, Eleusis gets destroyed by Alaric the, Vi- the Visigoth, uh, Visigoth, excuse me. Um, but you know, there's some speculation that this could have been older too. It could have come from some of the Minoan mm-hmm. cults or the Mycenaean cults, um, yeah, and led to kind of what it is. Um, so, and also, there's a famous, famous thing that would point to the to. Uh, you know, as, as Leah mentioned uh, so eloquently, you know, this is obviously based around mythology. However, the thing that makes it so popular these days is this idea that the Kekion, um, it's uh, K-Y-K-E-O-N, if anybody wants to look it up. Um, this thing was drinking, or drank, excuse me, I can't even talk tonight. This thing was drank, <laughs> um, uh, this thing was drank out of a vessel, Um and there's some speculation, well, there's a lot of speculation, that uh, it had psychoactive properties based on anybody that talked about mm-hmm. it. Um, and also, if you can see behind me in my background, that's the Telesterion, uh, which is where kind of everything went down. Things were seen, heard. Um, I'm going to pull up a picture here. Now, here's the Telesterion. Yeah, it- I, um, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but it's Go interesting because Kaikion comes up in um, the Iliad, right? Like Homer recounts the ingestion of this, and he describes it specifically as containing wine, barley, and cheese, which is kind of interesting. And then also in the Odyssey, um, it's sort of referenced in an offhanded kind of way. Um, but yeah, like like building on what you said, there's a lot of theories about um, the inclusion or saturation of this beverage or drink with psychoactive substances, everything from kind of the standard boilerplate speculation around it being like psilocybin mushrooms um, or um, this idea that ergot uh, was found in the grain and then included in these drinks and ergot um is uh, kind of a, a precursor to LSD. Um, it can have a bunch of deleterious and unpleasant effects on people, but does also cause the same kind of hallucinogenic or entheogenic experience um, that yeah. would contribute to the kind of ritualistic power of ingestion and imbibing uh, this drink, particularly in like this ritual setting. Did I lose you, Mike? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I thought I muted myself. Um, yeah, no, that's you know that was well put. Uh, the one thing you know, um, you know, you mentioned the ergot or the claviceps purpurea, which grows you know on the wheat, um, which is a a wheat or um, rye or barley fungus. Um, it does have, you know, it is the precursor to LSD. However, as you mentioned, it's got a lot of neurotoxic uh, effects. However, I think, like I mentioned earlier with dosage, um, it is used for some things having to do with like childbirth and migraines and things like that. Um, now, the interesting thing is, um, what's going on, Shane? Can you mute yourself, please? Um, <laughs> uh 
Um, now, the interesting thing about that is, is in that book, the immortality key. It was always speculated that, that was going on, but they actually found uh, Brian Morescu went and sampled some of these chalices, and they actually found physical evidence cool. of er- ergot. And he points to all this stuff called pharmacon. Uh, which is you know mm-hmm. wine, and they used to spike wine with like everything back then. We'd mentioned tropanes, tons of tropanes found in in a lot of archaeological sites, especially one found near Pompeii, uh, which had everything mm-hmm. from lizard bones to tropanes to you know opium and all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Oh, I, I was just gonna make an offhand comment about how it takes extremely, extremely small amounts of any of those stuff to cause us psychoactive experience. So even just trace amounts would still lead to these expansive states. Absolutely. Now, one thing that's, and I don't, I have to look into this more. I've done some research, but we were in a Twitter space. It was like a UFO space, and this woman was from Greece. Uh, and she had popped into a number of them. Uh, but I was joking around. I said something like, oh, you know, I would love to go there and see, you know, Eleusis where they had me." And she started talking and she said, oh, yeah, they did psychoact. It's like a known thing among some of the Greeks that, you know, and actually she said something interesting. She said they were mushrooms. I said, what do you mean? It wasn't ergot or she said, no, the the word for um, uh, mushroom a, or a single grape is the same thing as mushroom apparently so that was the somehow the connection that she made i don't know this lady was like full greek too she wasn't you know just um you know she knew her stuff basically because she was mentioning a lot of other stuff that unless you i mean she lived in greece obviously so i assume she was aware of something but again i have to make a little bit more or do a little bit more research on that but um, I found that that was interesting, and that's actually what Terrence McKenna thought, too. Terrence McKenna has a couple, mm-hmm. um, he's got many talks online, but he's got a couple famous clips where he's talking about um, the different, uh, there's actually like a recipe list of, of uh, Kekian where he thinks that water is actually an augum. Um, you don't put water as part of a recipe, um, so you would have you know, the augum, which would be the mushrooms that you would add to this brew. Now, for me, I I don't have to go full way one or the other. I know that these people were experiencing something crazy. Um, It was most likely kind of like an ayahuasca experience, which some people do believe that this was an uh, ayahuasca analog, uh, too. There is is some people, because peganum harmala is very prevalent in that area. It's not hard to find plants that contain DMT either. So uh, that was another idea. But Getting back to the point, um, the whole ergot thing is interesting because of the symbolism. And I'm going to show you some right now. Let me find this picture. Let me find this picture here. What do you see there? Grain, a flower, and a barrel of some kind or a pillar. Exactly. And this is found at Eleusis at the site. Um Cool. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you had the Telesterion, which I had pulled up. Here's a, another overhead view of the Telesterion. Um, and, again, this would have had a structure in the middle, too. Now, older um, historians and archaeologists um, would have pointed out that, like, the Eleusinian Mysteries, it was some sort of, like, 
strip show or maybe a fertility show where maybe people, you know, we're doing stuff in front of other people or a strip show or a light show or all, a play. But it's like the, the Greeks were famous for their plays. Okay. The Greeks definitely had orgies. Like none of those things make sense from mm -hmm. like a logical standpoint, you know, like the, the Bacchanalias. There's a reason I like that portmanteau. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, the Bacchanalias. It doesn't make sense from from that from that standpoint. So, here we have the Plutonian cave um, in Eleusis. I actually had my own psychedelic experience a few years ago, where I was taken through history, and um, I had this idea, like, what if? Because, and I'll read this quote from Plato about the Eleusinian mysteries in a second from the Phaedo. But um, what if he participated in the Eleusinian Mysteries, walked over to this cave, tripping his ass off, and came up with the allegory for the cave, or the allegory of the cave? I don't know. That just kind of, like, clicked while I was under the influence of psilocybin. And it just, again, I was taken through this, like, history slideshow in my mind, and it was very interesting. So, uh, but this is an Eleusis, these Plutonian caves. There's a bigger one and a smaller one. Um, and there's also something that goes down almost like into what could be thought of as like a hell. So I thought that that symbolism was kind of interesting as well. That's super cool. Um, let's see here. Here's another view of it. Shout out to Sandy. Sandy actually went to Eleusis recently, took a bunch of awesome pictures. Looking forward to so cool. talking about that with her as well. Here you have that one. Here's another one. So yeah, the symbolism's awesome. There's another side view you can see. Yeah, so I mean that's that's what we got on um on Eleusis, but uh so yeah, we mentioned the dating you mentioned your, you know, your take. An important anecdote um, about this is the famous profaning of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was done by Alcibiades in fourteen fifteen or four fifteen. I'm sorry, four fifteen BC. Um, if you don't know who Alcibiades was, he was an Athenian statesman, and um, yeah, he uh, the what was considered profaning the Eleusinian Mysteries was he supposedly did this or took part in the Eleusinian mystery in a private house or at a dinner party. Um, now, some people say that he took psychedelics at this dinner party or maybe spiked the wine or something along those lines. Uh, I think it makes sense because um, I don't know what he could have done. What would the Eleusinian mystery have been that he could have done at this house if it wasn't taking some sort of psychoactive compound? There were known drinkers, again, orgies, plays, you name it. So... Um, that one makes sense. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. Super fascinating. I See, I love seeing the symbolism in this artwork too, because that tells you like as much as it can, that it reflects sort of the preoccupations and views of the culture and society that's creating this work, right? Like it's like when you pulled up the, the grain and the flower, that picture, um, it was no small effort to make this kind of public artwork. So it tells you that these are things that that culture and society valued, you know, and, and saw meaning and purpose in. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, great point. And um, I think a lot of these ancient cultures that were skilled, um, not only just, you know, with their creating, let's say, you know, you can go to ancient Greece, talk about like the pre-Socratics and philosophers and things like that, but just the architecture, you know, um, Greek architecture. I mean, it's still influencing us to this day. And you mentioned um, this specific or the last couple of images. And yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, we're going to start to wind down here. I'm going to get to the end of the Lucini Mysteries. We'll touch upon Soma <coughs> and then we'll wrap it up. I don't, I didn't want to do two history episodes on that. I just think that that's too much. So I'll try and keep this quick. I will point out Marcus Aurelius did reinstitute the mysteries uh, after they were disbanded for a while. Um, and if you have not read Marcus Aurelius's meditations, I really recommend that you do so. Um, okay, so this is a quote from Athena Goris. With reason did the Athenians adjudge a Diagoras guilty of atheism in that he only divulged the Orphic doctrine and published the mysteries of Eleusis and of the Kabiri. We've talked about the Kabiri. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. Um, and chopped up the wooden statue of Hercules to boil his turnips, but openly declared that he was, that he there were no gods at all. So um, that's from about the Eleusinian mysteries. And then this is from uh, Plato, um, speaking as Socrates um, from Phaedo. Uh, which is about, you know, immortality and soul and all that stuff. Um, our mysteries cool. had a very real meaning. He uh, he that has been purified and initiated shall dwell in the God or dwell with the gods. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, yeah, so that was the Eleusinian Mysteries. Anything you want to add before we move on to Soma, uh, Leah? Let's do it, man. All right, everybody's getting tired. Shane's getting tired. Leah's getting tired. We are pushing I know, I'm through. Such an, I'm such a fucking old. It's one one twenty in the morning, and I'm like, I can't I, wait it to, is. Uh, I mean, it is. Yeah. It is. It's you know, it's late here too. It's twelve thirty. Shane's got it easy. It's ten thirty where he lives. He should not be tired at all. Oh yeah. Yeah, but he's he's old. He's old. He's gray beard. Well, older. Gray bush. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, let me find my Soma spiel. I'll get on with it, and then we'll move on to the end. All right, I, I wrote this out. I was going to do a couple of videos on it, I don't know, but so I'll keep it short. Intro, what was Soma? To this day, it is one of the greatest mysteries of the ancient world. Everyone from academics to psychedelic researchers to spiritual leaders have come up with different theories and explanations as to what the ancient psychoactive concoct uh, concoction was made of. Drinking Soma is said to have helped one attain light, immortality, and commune with the gods. Uh, it is said, or um, the goal of this, oh, I'm not going to add that because that doesn't make any sense what I'm saying. Uh, but basically, you know, we did a What Was Soma series Part one is with cannabis historian Chris Bennett. I highly, um, you know, uh, appreciate his work. He's done a ton of research um, into that whole thing and the etymology and um, basically, you know, looking into this stuff from linguistics to migration patterns to, um, you know, terminology and stuff like that. Uh, and then episode or part two was with Matthew Clark, um, who basically thinks it's an uh, 
a Middle Eastern ayahuasca analog. So two very interesting but different theories. I respect both of them. I lean more towards Chris Bennett, but I am open to the possibility of, you know, being more. But I have my own theories on that, and that'll conclude in part three of the What Was Soma series. We'll see if I can convince Leah to come back for that. Um, okay, so the, the, the origin of Soma comes from the Indo-Iranian migrations. The main migration theories and the eastern descendants of the Indo-Europeans migrated from the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And, um, you know, they basically moved along and... Um, you know, some of the people migrated uh, east to around the top of the Caspian Sea. I wish I had a map for everybody. That would make it so much easier. Um, but to, you know, basically to where now modern day Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan um, is. Oh, and, and Mike, do you want to put us back on the on the stream or do we oh, just yeah, like, sorry. keep looking at this monolith? Sorry. The monolith is nice, but um, no, 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 sorry. I'm pretty I, cute too. Let's catch, let's catch Shane sleeping. Um, um so you know there's two cultures that uh came out of there that were considered indo-iranian the androv androvo and the shintasta uh and they were dated roughly to around 2000 bc during the indo-iranian migrations it is believed that the word sauma s-a-u-m-a which meant to press uh, was created along with rituals. The Indo-Iranian languages started to diverge around 2000 BC, uh, which happened in a two-wave migration pattern uh, that was proposed by Burrow in 1973 and Parpola in 1999. Um, let's see here. So yeah, you have the two groups, basically. I'll break this down. Uh, you have the, the first... Um, that broke off and then went towards Northwest India, uh, which created the Vedic culture. And um, they created the first, um, you know, written religious text, which is the Rig Veda, uh, which has Soma and different uses within the Rig Veda. It's known as a plant, an elixir, and also a god. Um, the Vedic uh, Sanskrit term for Soma uh, translates to distill, extract, and sprinkle uh, researchers say that the Soma references in the Rig Veda to light and immortality suggest it is most likely an entheogenic compound, along with other supporting evidence. Uh, Ralph Griffin translated the Rig Veda Mandala hymn 8.48.3 to reading as, We have drunk Soma and became immortal. We have attained the light. The gods discovered. So, I mean, I don't know if that's a fedra that sounds like some serious tryptamine stuff happening there i don't know what do you think leah uh that definitely does not sound like a fedra that definitely sounds like some tryptamines or something that's truly psychedelic in nature um, absolutely rather could be than just kind of like a gentle cup of coffee yeah it could be cannabis too i mean let's face it we've all mm -hmm. maybe taken an edible that's really pushed our limits you know i definitely have yep. It, and I, you know, one of the things I actually meant to say this earlier is that when we think about how these substances were used, they were used in ritualistic settings that in and of themselves, without the use of exogenous psychedelics, would still be 
um, expansive. They would still uh, result in an altered state of consciousness because you would have things like chanting and dancing and um, fasting or feasting or sex or whatever. Um, but the point is that, like, even if we don't conventionally think of psych of cannabis as a psychedelic right now in 2022, when you're using it in these like really highly energized, intense environments, particularly ritualistically, like it can absolutely be a psychedelic experience. 100 percent and there's a great book i know we had stephen gray on last night he wrote a book about cannabis you should check out um check out that episode too but um psychic what, uh, what was his book i might actually have it uh you probably do i forget the name it says uh, something with spirituality and cannabis but i know um he wrote the forward cannabis to, and spirituality yeah cannabis and yep. spirituality i know um uh we had daniel mcqueen on who wrote the book Psychedelic Cannabis, which I really like too. And I think Stephen Gray wrote the foreword for that as well. Psychedelic Cannabis is is great. I actually really like what Steve, or uh, Steve, Steve McQueen, Daniel McQueen's doing um, in Denver mm -hmm. area. So if anybody's interested, look him up. He's actually one of the first um, people that was talking about DMTX. So um, yeah, check that yeah, out. Yes, so you and I should offline about this. Um, you know what I'm surprised you haven't brought up? Although maybe you've, yeah, you were talking about Chris Bennett, Libra 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and Occult Cannabis. Yeah. I, I have I have a big stack of books right next to me. That's a that's big book, the top too. Of the pile. It is a big fucking book. It's like <laughs> War and Peace Weed. <laughs> yeah, no, Chris has uh, been on the show. He's really knowledgeable, and um, yeah, he, uh, he really knows his stuff, puts in the work, so... Um, for sure let's see here where was i okay um in the mandala uh the rigveda mandala ate him 8.79.2 dash six reads he covers the naked and heals uh all who are sick the blind the blind man sees the lame man steps forth uh let those seek find what they shall seek let them receive the treasure let them find what was lost before let them push forward the man of truth, um, Rig Veda Mandala eight, um, him 8.82.25 for thee, uh, O Lord of light, uh, are they shed these Soma drops. So again, you have the elixir being dropped there and grass in strewn. Now that's interesting because grass, um, might indicate like a phalaris grass, which does contain DMT. And I think that that would, might be part of where, you know, you have that whole ayahuasca analog thing coming in. Uh, it says, bring Indra to his worshipers. May Indra give thee skill and lights of heaven, wealth of his votary. Votary? V-O-T-A-R-Y? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and priests who praise him. Uh, laud ye him. Um, so, yeah, there's just a, a bunch of different hymns like that that I've done. Again, we'll do a part three of what was Soma, but... Um, so here's the physical descriptions of Soma, and then I'll get to the differences. Most people don't even know there's something called Homa, which I, I, di I didn't get to. So we just got to the Rig Veda. We're about to get to the Avesta in a second. But here's the physical descriptions of Soma. The stalks of the plant were pressed with stones. So that's interesting. The elixir was strained through wool and then mixed with milk and water. Now, when you have an edible, um, if it doesn't decarboxylate, like for... THC or cannabis, if you don't decarboxylate it, um, I know Chris, I think he mentioned 
maybe it decarboxylated in the sun in some of these areas if it was hot enough um dried out Mm, long enough um but if you didn't have that uh thc has to bind with a fat and milk has fat Mm -hmm. so i mean i would point that out um yeah they have um in in india and thailand they like bang which is just yeah, that's what he talks about. Yeah. fresh cannabis. Yeah. So yeah, like shred it up with, uh, with milk. Absolutely. Um, it is said to be a plant that grows in the Hindu Kush mountains. It was yellow and green with long stalks. Now that sounds like cannabis. Um, and it associated uh, with the warrior god Indra, uh, who would drink it before battle, um, that's why some suggest that it may have been a stimulant like ephedra, but I mean, you're mentioning earlier the berserkers and mushrooms. So I don't think that could we think salvia, of thing- or not salvia, um, <laughs> imagine going into battle on salvia, everybody just falls over like 5,000 years is like the shield. Um, no, I was going to say sativa, right? Like a more stimulating, um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's other references to light and immortality that would suggest it was an entheogen and the uh, Tharva uh, Veda, which is considered to be the king of medical herbs or it's in there. I'm sorry. Um, and it was pr- it was mentioned it's purchased from traders. So this was something that was being traded around uh, much like today. <laughs> um, let's see here. OK, now we get to the Avesta. So I mentioned the one group from the Indo-Iranian migrations going to Northwest India, you have the other group now going down around and then into Iran. Um, now this is where you get HOMA or H A O M A, uh, or H M H O M A. Some people, um, spell it, but HOMA is the same thing as SOMA. It, it comes from the same root, which is SU or who, um, which would be the the precursor to Salma or Soma. Um, so the, at one point, these cultures were one as part of this Indo-Iranian, uh, Indo, before that Indo-European mm-hmm. culture. Um, and then they slowly migrated that way. Um, and then they break off and then they create, it's interesting because one creates the Rig Veda and now you have the other one creating the Avesta. Now the Avesta is the Zoroastrianism, um, you know, spiritual book. Um and in there, uh, Homa is a divine or entheogenic plant that is drink um, in the Zoroastrian and Zoroastrianum, and then later in Persian cultures. Uh, the Avestan term Homa or Hauma um, is a cognate of the Vedic Soma, as I mentioned. Um, you know, there's many similarities, but then there are some differences too, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so you have Sanskrit uh, Soma, Avestan Homa. Um, and these are both Proto-European. Uh, uh, let's get down to... Okay, so this is... I, I'll read just a couple quick ones. Uh, stanzas or whatever these are called. Um, let's see here. 9.22 from the Avestan says, Hauma grants speed and strength to warriors and excellent and righteous sons to giving birth, spiritual power and knowledge to those who apply themselves to study of the uh, Nasks? I don't know what that means. Uh, Yasna 9.22. Hauma is righteous and furthers righteousness, is wise and gives insight. Hauma is considered the first priest installed by Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda is the god of... Uh, 
Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism is the longest running continuous religion in the world. Super fascinating religion too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we get our concepts of lightness and dark, good and evil, that kind of a thing. So um, let's see here. Okay, this is the physical. I gave you the physical descriptions of Soma. Here's the physical descriptions of Hauma. The plant has stems, roots, and branches. Yasna 10.5. It is golden green, Yasna 9.16. It can be pressed, Yasna 9.1 and 9.2. It is tall, Yasna 10.21, Venadad, Venadidad, 19.19. It is fragrant. Now that one's interesting to me because cannabis is probably one of the most fragrant. If you've ever been around like a cannabis farm or grow op or whatever, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it reeks. That's why people, if you do indoors, you need s- super, super good ventilation systems. And, uh, yeah, so. Um, okay, this says it grows in the mountains, is swiftly spreading uh, apart on many paths um, to the gorges and the abysses and on the ranges. Um, it's the plant asu. The term asu is used in conjunction with the term uh, description of hauma. Um but there has not been an established uh, translation. Okay, so here we go. This is what it is said to do to your body and mind from the Avesta. Physically strengthening, stimulates alertness and awareness, furthers healing, it furthers sexual arousal, uh, it is nourishing and the most nutritious thing for the soul, it is mildly intoxicating extract but can be consumed without negative side effects. I mean, that's cannabis. I don't really, I mean... I don't know, but, uh, si- okay, this is, I'm going to wrap it up. Similar. I know everybody's bored of shit, so I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm going to know I'm a big nerd and I spent a lot of time on this stuff and I'm sorry, but I got to get through it. Whatever. You're in, you're in good nerdy company, Mike. All right. You're good. All right. So similarities between Soma and Homa, uh, both are referenced as plants, elixirs, and are personified as divine beings. Both have medicinal properties. Both are yellow or gold and green. Both are derived from the Indo-Iranian salma, which means to press. Again, you could press, you know, the the stems, you know. Uh, you rip off the cola, press the stems, or leave the cola on, get real weird with it. Um, both are described as being drank before battle and assisting warriors. Both are associated with rituals. Both describe um, entheogenic effects, light, and immortality. Both were extracted from plants and mixed with other things. Both grow in the mountains. Both uh, have their origins in heaven, according to the religious texts. Uh, both had stocks that were pressed with stones. Okay, here's the discrepancies and contradictions. This is where they differ. Both are described as plants, but also as trees that grow in the mountains. Both are described as producing... Uh, entheogenic states, but also have stimulant-like effects. Um, in the Rig Veda, it is usually obtained from traders, and in the Investa, is gathered by women. Uh, Boyce, in 1975, stated that Homa is said to have been of many kinds. Homa is found in the plural form in the Avesta. So, all right, that was my spiel on it. Um, my conclusion, and I'll get to this on Soma Part 3, 
is that it's any type of psychoactive compound that is associated with ritual. It most likely started as cannabis, maybe cannabis mixed with ephedra or opium or multiple things at once, but I think it has to do more about the ritual mixed with a psychoactive compound, in my opinion. So that's why nobody can put their finger on exactly what Soma is. I think Chris Bennett and Matthew Clark are probably a lot closer than others. Just my opinions. Any takes, Leah or Shane? Before we wrap it up, you should have probably had uh, Jeff Knox on here, Vancouver guy. <laughs> he probably got to take it my place. He knows quite a bit about this, it seems, from the chat. Yeah, Jeff is a, a tremendous drug nerd and a UFO nerd. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I I think this question of Soma is super fascinating to me. Um, like when we look at the different um, objective and subjective effects of it. Um, to me, it does fit very kind of clearly into cannabis, or at least probably cannabis plus something else. Like, again, going back to what I said about, like, uh, you know, um, setting of use and ritual. Um, and it may also be like, I think it may be like a polydrug circumstance where it's some plus opiates or opioids or whatever um, for this sort of combination of experience. But I, I, so... I, I find that conclusion compelling and certainly believable. Um, that no, this is actually my first time hearing about Homa, um, so I don't really have a meaningful opinion. Oh, really? Know enough to make a judgment? Yeah, but um, it's been super fascinating. Listen to you kind of do this like almost comparative study of them, um, and I would love to dig more into that. Uh, I'm just totally unfamiliar yeah. with it. Yeah, no, I mean they are kind of the same thing. They're just separated by a little time and geography but they do come from the same base culture so yeah i mean let's talk about it. i mean i like i said we talked off air i'd love to work on a couple things with you and um i think you have sure. some valuable things that you can offer me and i can you know share my whatever i have nerdiness wise with you so yeah i mean before we wrap, wrap things up so like i i you know had my notes open and my my commentaries and stuff and like i would love i mean not to put you on the spot but i'd love to be part of the conversation when we go kind of closer in the timeline like when we start talking about like the early medieval period early modernity sort of the stretch from you know um antiquity through like the 20th century and looking yeah, at like let's do like that Hergott, let's St. continue Vitus this then Dance, this was this will be the Alice ancient Huxley, one like yeah yeah, because like, I feel like it's such a interesting and complex storyline that gets woven together, and we can directly tie like all this historic stuff to what we see and experience now, both culturally, pharmacologically, socially around these substances. That can be seven point one. Let's do it. Cool. You don't have to convince me. I'm down. That's my favorite. This is my favorite shit to talk about. So you don't have to coax me into it. Um, but yeah, no, I really appreciate your um, thoughts on it. You've actually, uh, I mean, I know you know a lot about this stuff, but you knew like five or six of those compounds. I Going into them, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say when it comes to this. I've never even heard of this before, but you knew what those were. So I really appreciate that. And um, Shane was very funny tonight, and I appreciated him and his Squatch yes. hat. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're so smart, and then Shane made us laugh. <laughs> No, you're smart too, bro. I would wish you would I say I more, I, I, bro. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. No, I'm not gonna lie. I don't know this topic. I gotta do a little more learning on it. I'll say Jeff Knox to he definitely gonna take it my place, but I, I'll say that I did learn quite a bit. So, well, yeah. Shout out to Jeff. Thanks for being awesome in the the uh, thread. 
Yeah, everybody yeah. in there. Matt, yeah. you're right. It kind of felt like I was in quantum computing class in night school. Just kind of, oh, yeah. Bri- Bridge Ryan saved my ass a couple times too. Olmax and some, you know, we we got a look. We've got great viewers, participants, listeners. Um, you know, people send me nice messages. Yeah, everybody. And then we have the UFO Twitter crew too, who are supportive, no matter the topic. I, I love everybody. Everybody's awesome. I don't have um, any interest in you know beefs or you know bad relationships. So you know, is if you're if you're here for the knowledge and you just want to learn and interact, and that's that's all I'm about. You know, that's what Mind Escape's about. I know that's what Leah's about. I know that's what Shane's about. So, um, yeah. No, I I just appreciate you both, and uh, like hey, I said, let, let's man, do it. When I, I when I talk about trying to elevate the conversation in this space, uh, everyone hears me harp on integrity, but there are other ways elevate the conversation can come into play too. So drug chat is always welcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll do this. Will be part one of the history. We'll do part two of the history with the more medieval and modern. And you probably know way more about that than I do because I'm, I'm solely a nerd about the ancient stuff not that i haven't you know read up on some of the other stuff but yeah um if anybody's interested i did a really what i think is compelling episode on um the uh the devil's bible the codex gigas and um oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's at the straw monastery in prague i lived like right yeah. next door to it so uh, have you while. seen that episode that I've not to put you on the spot. I, I haven't. I, I this is no. This okay. is I, it's one of. I wasn't expecting I had no it. No idea that you even did an episode on this. So it, cool. it, it it became. I did like a slideshow episode. I put a ton of research and time into it, and because I saw somebody posted a DMT entity on DMT World, which is an app, and I go, that looks a lot like the devil from the Codex Gigas and the story of the uh, monk, and then the. Um, the actual devil's Bible. And then uh, is it Rudolph the first, how he became obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And then he was yeah. also connected to John D it's and they're huge too. doing psychedelics yeah, and you know, the whole thing just comes together and it's, I really recommend watching that episode. I think you would like it because, and I don't really recommend oh, dude, my own stuff. That. Yeah. So no, it's totally my thing. I'm, I have studied rare books and manuscripts uh, in central and Eastern Europe, lived in Prague, lived adjacent to the Strahov Monastery where it's kept. I'm pretty familiar with it. So I'd, I would love to see your episode on this. I'm delighted. Yeah, I would love your feedback one. too. Maybe I'm completely off my rocker full of shit, but I just fu- I found some connections there between that um, and the uh, Hayoka from you know Native American cultures, like just the look and then comparing of you know kind of like what i'm doing here with the soma stuff it's like a lot of comparative stuff and cross-cultural stuff but listen we're gonna wrap it up here uh i appreciate we've gone two and a half hours this is super long we started an hour late that's my fault i was having phone issues and then you know (laughs) accidentally dialed uh the emergency thing i canceled before it went through but um i was having camera issues my dslr was acting all glitchy so then i used my phone which seems to be pretty crisp. Let me know what what it's looking like. Oh, it looks hand. beautiful. Okay. Yeah. I do have um, a question for Leah, though. Yeah, go ahead. Who is Leah Prime? Oh man! So if anyone paying attention is I interested in who no Leah one Prime knows. is, no one knows. No one I talk to knows. Um, last night I had the great privilege and pleasure to join Deb on Deb's Data Dojo, and that was the opening question, which led into this circuitous conversation about my background in education, um, sort of how I wound up in ufology. But, um, nice. Right, well, yeah. Now that's answered. 
Yeah, I'll check that out. I didn't watch that last night, but I'll try and listen to it tonight when I'm passing out. Um, But listen. Um, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask if I can plug a couple things uh, before we wrap up. Plug away. I was going to plug stuff for you, but I'd rather you do it. You're going to sell yourself better. So. I'm I'm a self-plugging kind of woman. What can I say? Um, yep. So everyone knows I'm Leah Prime. Leah Prime on Twitter. You can catch me at Leah Prime at Proton.me if anyone here wants to reach out for direct one-on-one conversation. I host the Invisible Night School on Wednesday evenings, 9 p.m. on YouTube, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, small panel style discussion. Um, generally, we have guests on exploring ufology and trying to branch out into some other subjects. But what I really wanted to plug. Um, and Mike, you were kind enough to bring it up earlier, is I run the Psychedelic Book Club. Um, We are just wrapping up Alien Information Theory by Andrew Gallimore. We meet Tuesday evenings from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We are then going to be reading The Varieties of Spiritual Experience by Dr. David Yadin, who is at Johns Hopkins University. We expect to start that book off sometime in uh, probably early February. Great group, um, small reading group, variety of backgrounds and experiences, uh, really open conversation. I also have a soft commit from Dr. Yaden to join us for a couple sessions. But the other thing that I'm doing in 2023 is leading an Exo Studies Explorers group. Um, and I bring this up because it's going to be an emerging curriculum across the year, reading texts, sharing rich media, so lectures, music, videos, things like that. Um, and also holding these one-hour seminar-style groups. So the first book that we are reading um, is Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything. Um, I'm designing the curriculum so people can kind of join and drop out as they wish and as we move through different projects and uh, readings. So if anyone uh, paying attention is interested, find me on Twitter, at Leah Prime. I've opened DMs or shoot me an email, Prime at proton.me. Thanks, Mike. No, absolutely. Yeah, and definitely follow her on Twitter. She's a, a great Twitter follow at Leah Prime. And of course, follow our, our buddy Shane at Old Vet Symposium. And you can follow our buddy Toby, who is the co host of our other podcast, the Roswell UFO Symposium. He is at RDR Incident. Yeah, Shane. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, if you want to support Mind Escape, um, click the link tree link down below. Um, you know, you can either go on Anchor's got something, I believe, where you can donate money, any amount. Uh, we do have a Patreon for just $2 a month. that will give you access to all sorts of exclusive interviews that I've done and Maurice has done too. Uh, we've had, we've done plenty of ones with like Rick Strassman and, um, you know, we've had Randall Carlson on there, Laird Scranton. We've had tons of people that I find very interesting. Dude, yeah, go ahead. I meant to tell you, so I grew up with Laird Scranton. Close oh, family friend, known him for thirty plus years. No yeah. way. Yeah, lives like two miles from where I'm staying right now. I have a bunch of his signed books. Yep. Uh, I know he lives in son, uh, Alb- Albany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Albany. Yeah. Um, right near where I grew up, we've been uh, lifelong friends of the family. Oh, that's awesome. No, that's you guys are both yeah. in the documentary he's, he's a, he's too, a real dude. I know. I know. <laughs> when I saw his name on the documentary, like, and I saw you tagged us on Facebook, I was like, "Oh my goodness, I had no idea Laird was involved." That's so cool. Yeah, we've had him on like five or six times. I think he's a, a regular. Uh, I love Laird. He's such yeah, he's a nice a guy. One. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so you can check out our Patreon. We do have a merch store. I created all our designs. Um, I'll th- be throwing some new ones in there too, maybe uh, in the next couple weeks. Um, and yeah, you can, you know, leave us a nice review on Apple podcast or Spotify. We do have video podcasts on Spotify, which not a lot do. 
Um, and also, if you're listening on an audio platform, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you are um, watching right now, please subscribe to our stuff or follow us on all the audio stuff. I am going to end this by playing uh, the trailer to our new documentary with both Leah and Shane are in it. Um, and yeah, is there anything else you, either of you want to add before we get out of here? Just, you know, as always, really appreciate the work both of you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, it's always a privilege to join the conversation. So thanks so much for having me this evening. Well, it's a privilege to have you here. You're a wealth of knowledge and you are welcome on the show anytime. So, um, yeah. And I wanted to thank, I wanted to thank Leah for coming. I always enjoy our conversations. Smart AF. And let me say, uh, if you can, everybody check out Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, and, um, Heroic Heart Foundation. Let's see if I can get myself on that list quicker. Right down there. I'm gonna get South you, America's dude. I'm gonna. I'll. I'll I, do something. I was thinking awesome. about maybe writing a letter or an email or something. I'll. We'll. We'll get so, you in there. I don't even know if I'm on the list yet, but I'm gonna keep shouting that out. Oh, you better be on that list, bro. Um. All right. I signed up, but, but I don't know. okay. We'll see. But thank you, Leah. All right. Well, we love everybody. Oops. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close the point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky. You know, you know you're not dreaming, but you wonder how real any of it really is. It dawned on me, it, it was real, this, this took place, but then I still didn't do anything with it, never said anything to anybody. There is some mind-altering aspect to these UFO encounters. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time. I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation. It was a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. Again, the goals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive how things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that, one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. You call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense, and that when this experience is over, that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die.
because it can't die. It fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now. They show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug. Coming from the scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetics to atmosphere to something that's physical in nature. There's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system, the human body, is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis, seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.